This is Rodney Thompson, game designer for the Star Wars role-playing game at Wizards of the Coast, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. This is Sam Whitwer, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Uh, your mom. Boom! Boom! You see that? That was like the mom joke and just, you know? know. Boom! It's an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was the most intelligent species occupying the planet, instead of the third most intelligent. The second most intelligent creatures were, of course, dolphins, who, curiously enough, had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth. They'd made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for tidbits. So they eventually decided they would leave Earth by their own means. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Greetings, greetings, Gamer Nation. This is episode number 42 of the Order 66 podcast. And yes, you know what 42 means. The cultural significance of the number 42, of course. As we pay homage to our show, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, off the top of the show. For those of you that did not recognize it, but anyway. I've spoken too long. I've outdone my eight words that I usually speak. So I'll turn it over at this time to my... Always faithful co-host, GM Chris. 
Uh, pseudo faithful, I'll go with. What is up, Gamer Nation? It is I, GM Chris, and uh, we welcome you guys to the Order 66 podcast, episode 42. Of course, 42 being the uh, answer to the life, uh, the universe, and everything. And uh, we are pleased to have with us on this very special episode of the Order 66 podcast uh, our good friend and uh, game designer we all know and love, Jedi Master Rodney Thompson. What is up, Rodney? Not much, just sitting here with my towel. I am fully prepared for this, the great 42nd episode, and I uh, just want to say hello to everyone out there in the Gamer Nation, and also, go Titans. Go Titans. Ah, they, they, so uh, the, the, the Tennessee boy has to speak his piece. That's right. Those Tennessee tuxedos. They win again, I suppose. Yes, sir. 10-0, baby. Oh. Yeah. Hell of a season, actually. So I imagine you were cheering pretty stout this afternoon. Well, I was actually, we, we don't get the TV broadcast out here because we what? have the Seahawks and they black everything out. Uh, of course. So say it, say it. Uh, I had to listen to it on the internet. And, oh. You know, yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, they are having a good season. But, uh, but that's speaking, not why we're here. That's not why we're here, because we're going to talk about different good seasons. Good seasons that uh, Watsi is having with uh, this this game that we like to uh, you know slack jaw about for hours on end. Um, and you are here, sir, to discuss with us the amazing new book that is coming out when? Tuesday? Um, I guess it's the street date, although I, I understand several people already have their copies. Um, of course. Due to, due to wonderful stores not really caring about the street date. Um, which is, of course, Scum and Villainy. Um, and we're going to be talking a lot about that this episode, uh, and we're glad to have you on board with us. But uh, what do you say we get some uh, little business stuff out of the way first, guys? What do you think? Fire it up. Nah, not really. No? I don't want to. Uh, actually, before we start, I wanted to apologize to the chat room and everybody. 30 of you in the chat room, which is just amazing, simply amazing. Mm-hmm. We have 30 of you in the chat room. Uh, for being late, my daughter, as some of you know, was uh, invited in the Olympic Development Program, and that practice went way long, and anyway, a bunch of hooey at the end it's of it. It's just the Olympics, Dave. Good yeah, God. it's just the Olympics. Anyway. It's not so, like she's any good. God. I'm only, I'm only like an hour and a half later coming home than I thought I was. So anyway, <laughs> mucho apologies to both our guests and our chat room, but we can get the show on the road now. Oops. <laughs> Take a drink. <laughs> drink. Drink. Everybody Oh, it's drink. announcement times, folks. It's announcement times. Well, if you've been living in a cave on Mars with your fingers in your ears and blindfolded screaming la 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 under a rock la, 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 uh, for the past few weeks, you may not have heard about the, of course, joint venture between BioWare, EA, and LucasArts in creation of a brand new Star Wars MMO video game, which has been officially named Star Wars The Old Republic. And uh, take this opportunity to pimp out the newest podcast. It's a member of the D20 Radio Network, run by our good friend, Mostly Joe. And, oh, yeah, this guy, uh, yeah, this guy is also guy. also is on it. Um, the Holocron, uh, which got their second episode up last week. And uh, you guys can go to d20radio.com right now and download it and uh, hear all about the wonderful joyness of online MMOs and, and Star Wars. Uh, your last episode was pretty good, dude. I heard it... Um, I listened to it, I guess, I guess Tuesday, and you guys really go into a lot of the history behind uh, Star Wars MMOs, particular galaxies, and a lot of the pratfalls. I, th- I thought you guys did a pretty good job. Well, yeah. It's definitely the elephant in the room when you're talking about this this MMO property, or, uh, you know, you talk about galaxies and what they want to do or what they don't want to do, as the case may be. Yeah. But what about you, Rodney? You're a, a big MMO player? 
Uh, not a huge one. I actually, I used to be really, really hardcore into World of Warcraft, and then uh, when I moved out here to Seattle in February of 07, I kind of dropped out of it a little bit, and only in like the last month have I fired it back up because I knew the uh, Wrath of the Lich King expansion was coming out. Yeah. But that having been said, I did try Star Wars Galaxies. I played it for my free month and then put it aside. However, Star Wars The Old Republic looks to pretty much be the next thing that will completely end all hope of me having a social life. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Right. Very cool. And I understand, like, mostly Joe was telling us that uh, here in the chat room that the next thing you guys are going to tackle is going to be KOTOR itself. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as next week's show goes, yeah, we're going to talk about KOTOR 1 and 2, Fantastic. as in the video games. We'll probably have to have you on since you've played them both. Well, yeah, that, yeah. that's an understatement. Um, yeah. To, to say the least. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're excited about that. So, you guys can get to the website and check it out. And while you're there, if uh, you would like, you can go ahead and click on the link for the D20 Radio live vidcast, which all 30 people in the chat room right now are getting a chance to stare at myself and Dave and uh, listen to this podcast live as it's being recorded, um, which is kind of a fun thing. Yep. If I don't say so. And also, while you're at the site, if you absolutely really enjoy what you're listening to and you would like to proclaim your membership in the Gamer Nation to the rest of planet Earth, you can do so in the best form humanly possible, consumerism. <laughs> which uh, can be done by purchasing a D20 Radio t-shirt, which is available right now at the D20 Radio swag link at d20radio.com. Moving on, juicy bits of web goodness. Rodney, my hat is off to Watsi yet again. You guys have a brand new enhancement, eight up for the KOTOR campaign guide. You guys are churning this stuff out, man. There's, I mean, you guys are, I mean, it, you know, I know a lot of the people, you know, especially on the Gleamax forums have been whining a lot, um, but it, just in the past several months, you guys have been churning out free content like there's no tomorrow. Um, well, the web the web enhancements are really easy because it's mostly stuff that gets cut out of the uh, right. the book during editing and then actually mostly during layout uh, is when we end up having to cut the most stuff. So all these web enhancements um, are coming out mostly because when we were working on Night Sail Republic, we just got a little too eager and wrote more than we could fit into a book. So um, I believe that the eighth one is the last one, although I might be wrong about that. But it was all all just things. Things that we had cut out for space issues. Well, it makes sense. Now, as for those of you who aren't aware, uh, the, as obviously Rodney said, the eighth one is now up, and it consists of two of the more unusual ships in the galaxy at your beck and call. Um, there's the last resort, which it goes into, which is the strangely modified and singularly but heavily armed uh, amalgamated Hyperdyne uh, 578R space transport uh, turned grounded hideout, turned workshop, turned pseudo spaceworthy Pied Piper of Exogorths. Um, <laughs> Uh, captained by the Arcanian offshoot Camper, um, if any of us are fans of the EU. And it's a, it's a pretty neat CL6 transport that could easily be inserted into any of your campaigns. And of course, they also detail the stats for my favorite ship, um, probably in the entire Star Wars universe, the Mumo Willowa, uh, which um, I know at, at Gen Con, um, uh, uh, John Jackson Miller uh, also got a kick about telling us about, uh, which is a truly heavily armed and modified uh, Pelagia Command Assault Duplex gunship, with guns being the understatement uh, there. Um, helmed, of course, by the Ithorian bounty hunters and weapons fetishists, the Mumo Brothers. Uh, it's a CL-12 ship, it's ridiculously armed, and it's dual co and it has dual cockpits, each with independent control over the ship. 
Um, it makes for a very fun and deadly encounter in your campaign. So uh, two more ships to add to the stock. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you, Watsy. And that's another thing, too. I, mean, I know you say it's a lot easier to put these things up, but, you know, other, you know, some people would just leave this stuff on the cutting room floor. We would never see it. I think it's very commendable that you guys are getting this out to us at all. So, Well, you know, it's, it's material that we wrote out of the labor of love that is, you know, these books, right? I mean, when I sit down to write one of these books, I'm doing it because I, I enjoy it. I mean, yeah, I get paid for it, but that's more of a nice side effect. So, you know, and when you got guys like John Jackson Miller, who's getting to write up things that probably would never make it into the comics, um, you know, we don't we want this information to get out there. That's why we write it in the first place. So there's no reason to just sit on it. Well, well, there you go. And you guys can find this right now, of course, at www.wizards.com slash Star Wars, uh, which is, of course, the official website for uh, Wizards of the Coast Star Wars role-playing. And one last announcement um, that I'm sure Rodney will not be able to confirm or deny, but uh, the interwebs have been alive with the fact that Amazon has dropped the proverbial ball yet again by announcing a release of a new book, uh, The Rebellion-Era Campaign Guide, complete with a look at the really wicked-looking cover, which I hope is the actual cover. Um, next year, July 21st. Woot. Um, I can't wait. Of course, there's like... No comment. Four, yeah, no, no, no comment. comment. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but of course, so there's several books that have been confirmed that are coming out before then, so we've got quite a bit to keep us satiated in the meantime. That's true. Yep. So, very nice. Very, very nice. Well, gentlemen, I, I want um, the AT-AT. I want the AT-AT statted out. You've been saying that for a long time. Yep. Mm, well, I hope, hope. hope I'm going to get another can, no comment. Yep. We can, we can have just like those, uh, just like those snow speeders on Hoth. Ah. That would now be wait, really wait, fun. wait. Aren't I'm pretty sure those are statted out. Are they? Currently, I are they in the Force Unleashed? Are they? Are they? Are they in the Force Unleashed? They might be. Now you got me second guessing myself. I don't oh. know. Well, hang on, I'm just going to have to check. I am by no means a am by no means um, a keeper of the archives, so don't uh, don't rely on me for any official information. GM Chris, <laughs> there, he's the brains of this particular operation. There's no real doubt about that. The Minoc? Well, Why would you want the Minoc statted out? Oh yeah. Well, wait a second. Haven't we had Minocs? Yeah, in, they're in, in threats of the galaxy. Yeah, they're in threats. That's right. Uh, you guys had to fight a wonderful swarm in my home game, if I recall. Yeah, I remember the swarm thing. Oh, and speaking of swarm things, I've got a question from GM Brev about something that I think we can apply the swarm thing to. But uh, oh, okay, well, well, let's let's move on to that. Um, I actually, uh, if you'd like uh, to go into it, I did get a postcard from Cody this week. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm taking a look at it right now. Uh, it's a very simple picture. Um, uh, on the postcard, it's a small world uh, with large cities and open expanses of green vegetation and strong mountain ranges. And the caption on it reads, Welcome to Feline, tourist. We'd love for you to stay a while and talk with us. Hmm. From across the galaxy, it's time for Postcards from Commander Cody. GM Dave and GM Chris. Greetings, guys. I'll tell you, there's no rest for the weary. The almighty Emperor Palpatine was surprised uh, by the musical extravaganza we organized for him on Biss. I think mostly because we arranged it in his private resting chamber. <laughs> you should have seen the look on old Blackbone's face when they started playing. Uh, he immediately got back onto his feet and he continued with the heavy business of running the galaxy. 
Oh, Bad only got to play one set, but it's clear that that brief bit of entertainment revitalized the Emperor. He's been too busy to thank us, or, or even talk about it with us, but uh, I quickly received an order for reassignment out of his personal detail under Lord Vader's command now. And so, it's back to business as usual for me and my squad. This week, Lord Vader has rushed us to the mid-rim planet of Feline. I understand that he was overseeing some type of uh, research here uh, for the Imperial medical effort. Some type of biological concern, although I'm not sure why it was so secretive, or why we've been ordered to vaporize a large city housing all the research facilities from orbit. Who can guess? On an unrelated note, a deep quarantine has been instituted for several hundred miles around the area. The native Feline don't seem too happy about that. But I understand the royal house has also just been vaporized, along with the city, so, uh, I don't doubt we'll get too many formal complaints, eh? <laughs> All part of Imperial progress. I have gotten a brief chance to explore Feline, a ways away from the research site. It's a fairly unremarkable world, uh, unusual in the fact that it has no moons. But the climate is pleasantly temperate, with icy mountainous regions breaking up lush rainforest and grassy plains. It's a highly industrialized world, although I'm told the Feline don't get off planet too terribly much which is a shame. The Feline themselves are remarkable beings, and the females are, well, rather pleasing. And even the males, well, look, a soldier gets lonely every now and then, and I'd normally never consider it, but there's just something about the Feline that makes you wonder. Striking features and a natural confidence and charisma that are the hallmarks of this almost reptilian species, and up close they've got an alluring musk that is, well, alluring. I really can't explain it. Several of them have tried to ask some very sensitive questions to the men, and I don't mind telling you that I had to put two of my best on disciplinary action for revealing potentially secretive information. And why? Because they were too enamored to keep their mouths shut. Uh, well, I think it's best we just get off-world as soon as possible. Whatever sort of influence these Feline have on us is best avoided altogether. When Lord Vader is done here, we'll see where the next mission takes us. Right now, we're waiting in orbit. You know, maybe if we're lucky, we can do another orbital bombardment before we leave. Oh, gosh, that would be fun. Well, if you guys are into trying out some new experiences, take a jaunt to Feline. I hope you'll find the natives as interesting as I have. Later, guys. Long live the Empire! Your friend, Commander Cody. There he goes yet again. Boy, he's taking yes. a beating in our chat room. Oh, yeah. Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, I've not been to Feline yet, although I did have a chance to meet one of the Feline people um, I, I, on Bespin when I was there uh, for my honeymoon, or my second honeymoon uh, last year. Um, have you, have you, any of you guys ever been to Feline, Rodney, Dave? No. They, uh, they don't let me get out much, and I think that's part of like the kind of restricted travel zone. And, you know, I mean, I've got to be a good law abiding Imperial citizen when you uh, work for the great Emperor Lucas, so I kind of tend <laughs> right. to avoid that area of space. <laughs> Well, fair enough, fair enough. But uh, thank you for the postcard, Cody. It's going up right on the wall. Can't wait to hear from you next week. I'm glad you're doing yep. well. There's a rumor that um, there's a reason why we never see Commander Cody and Chris at the same time. It's like Superman. I have no idea what you mean. I don't know. I don't know what that is either. No, wait. Are you serious? You don't put anything over your camera when you do that? Or does Do it... what? Never mind. I don't even care. All right, that scumbag, note. pay attention. It's time for mail call. Look at that. You just can't wait to step all over my drops. It's my thing, man. It's what I do. It's my thing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we got some real mail here. Now, Rodney, 
It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, mostly because I know I can pepper you with stuff you're completely unprepared for. So That is true. Thankfully, <laughs> I'm completely unprepared, so you are, you are. this should was, be hilarious. This should be hilarious. We've, we've got mail call here. I mean, I, I, think, <sighs> I think these are pretty straightforward questions. Okay. And so let me say specifically, if, if there's anything I, that I'm recommending that, that is flat out wrong, please tell me. Uh, okay, what, what is that? The match game. I figure since we're going to be peppering Rodney with questions, that today's music will be game shows. Oh, that's wow. fantastic. I'm glad you had that much time on your hands. <laughs> All right. Well, getting into mail call, uh, Foxworthy on our forums had a question about stealth mechanics that he posted up this past week. Uh, more specifically, he asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, so I've been thinking about the rules for stealth, hiding, and awareness. Now, common sense would dictate that you'd need cover or concealment in order to be stealthy. Or in a non-combat situation, the person would need to like be not looking in your direction if you're out in the open. Of course, the thing is, Saga doesn't mention a hiding place as a requirement for stealth. Under the sneak usage, the only mention of hiding places comes up on whether or not you get a plus two or minus two bonus to your rolls, but not as a requirement. Under Snipe, it says you need to be hiding, and also under Create a Diversion, Hide mentions find a hiding place. This makes me believe it would require a hiding space to sneak in Saga. Well, at least in combat situations. Uh, an issue that comes up with this, though, is let's say someone has successfully hidden. Since Saga has no rules about walking out into the open while using sneak, then technically, if you walk up to someone in the middle of an empty room, I mean, you can as long as you roll better than them. To me, this just seems wrong, not intended, not to mention not really making common sense. Another issue comes up when you need to determine what is actually a hiding place. Now, I've seen posts where GM Chris equates a hiding place to having cover or concealment, which makes sense, especially for the fact that it would technically allow soft cover to be used as a hiding place, which is rather silly to me. I can kind of see an Ewok hiding behind a Tagorian and using Snipe, but since soft cover works both ways, that means you could have a Tagorian using an Ewok for cover and then Snipe. So my question would be, do you need a hiding place to sneak? What is a hiding place by Saga Rules? Um... Good question, uh, Foxworthy. I mean, and Rodney, correct me if I'm wrong, man, but I mean, my interpretation has always been uh, that you need to have either cover or concealment to sneak, and that was clarified for me on page 158 of the core rulebook when it talks about cover and stealth checks, where it says verbatim, you can use cover to make a stealth check. Without cover, you usually need concealment to make a stealth check. So, I mean, you've got to have either cover or concealment to even be hidden. Um, and, I mean, to me, that would be the hiding place, but... I mean, once you've and once you've left your hiding place, you're no longer hiding. I mean, like if I'm if I'm hidden and all of a sudden, I just leave my hiding place and enter into your line of sight. Uh, you see me, and I'm no longer hidden. I mean, that's what's so cool about the the creeping approach talent from the Infiltrator Prestige class, uh, page 49 of the Force Unleashed campaign guide, uh, that you can actually situationally enter line of sight and remain hidden. Otherwise, if you're noticed, you can't really sneak, and that's what the created diversion to hide function of the deception skill is used for. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I always interpreted it. And, you know, I figured that, you know, perhaps it was very much more up to the GM domain because obviously it's very situational and only the GM can be the final arbitrator of that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Rodney? So th there's actually kind of an interesting issue in that it's a, <clears throat> a bit of terminology that maybe is a little poorly defined in the game, um, but also the answer is kind of in two or three different places. Uh, like you pointed out, 
um, the cover and concealment rules say that you know you can right. use cover and concealment to hide. What really makes this um, probably a little more apparent is the way the perception skill works. Um, it says that if the target is uh, you know actively attempting to remain undetected, your perception check is opposed by the you know target stealth check. Right. Um, but more importantly is that detecting a target that enters your line of sight is a reaction. Um, basically, what happens is if someone's just out in the open, then you're you're you know you're not really going to need to make an effort to you know to see them right you're they're basically they've entered your line of sight and i wish i could find the page that uh mentions it right now but i believe we even say basically something along the lines of you know if someone's out in the open in your line of sight and they're not trying to hide effectively you just pretty much are almost guaranteed to notice them right right i think if i was um, reading that the perception skill yeah yeah, so so basically, there's there's this kind of funky interaction between the concept of awareness and the concept of hidden and so forth that um, we sort of used the vestigial remains of the previous editions rules when it came to concepts like awareness and hidden that maybe also weren't as well defined. But basically, what it really shakes down to is um, if you're if you're in hiding or if you've got concealment, you can make the stealth check in the first place. Once you move out into someone's line of sight, they can make a, you know, perception check as a reaction to notice you. If you're still, you know, kind of hidden or whatever, if you're still using stealth, then you get to oppose it. But eventually, at a certain point, the game master just has to say, okay, you know, you, you moved out and you hit him and, you know, you had stealth at the time so he probably wasn't aware of you until you came up and hit him but as soon as you you know shoot a guy or hit a guy he's probably going to know where you are right, right? Just common sense yeah sure and, and and that's where the snipe application of the skill comes in is that it allows you to do something that would normally cause your target to become aware of you without that actually happening because you, you pop up and you fire and then you make an immediate self check to continue hiding without uh, emerging from cover effectively or emerging from from hiding effectively Exactly. Now, now, okay. Now, in terms of the second part of his question, though, when he talks about using soft cover to make a stealth check, I mean, it would seem like per raw that would be allowed. But obviously, the idea of Dave or myself hiding behind uh, uh, an Ewok could be a little, a, a little, a little bit of a stretch. Um, I mean, and I guess it's very situational, GM, as well. I mean, I know in, in my own games, I mean, I impose a house rule that basically says if you want to use soft cover as stealth, you can, but it needs to be at least at least one size category larger than you. Um, yeah, um, so. that's it's kind of a stretch, and it's one of those times where this is why we have a uh, a game master instead of a you know game mastering robot, right? On the one hand, you know you don't want to say no, you can't use soft cover always because you know what if you're hiding behind a rancor, right? Exactly, a rancor technically might be soft cover for you, but uh, the other times you know you don't want to say okay that stormtrooper's hiding behind that one so he can make a stealth check. That really stretches the limits of your you know your suspension of disbelief. Um, so I'd say it's very situational on the one hand. Um, typically, though, anything that's within a size category of you, I'd say you know you're really going to have to have very special circumstances to be able to hide behind them like that. Okay, cool, excellent. Thank you, sir. Um, sure. See, see, Dave. He he. For a totally unprepared question, I'm I'm impressed. I am too. With the, with the level of with the level of, of acumen that. Uh, that uh, you know the, the this man has. I'm That's why sure. he's getting paid for it, and we ain't. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, moving on, uh, Daddy Stabs um, has a closely related question um, about Deceptive Shot. And he writes, My girlfriend plays a level 6 scoundrel, level 2 soldier, level 1 gunslinger in our local Dawn of Defiance campaign. She just hit level 9, her, her first level in Gunslinger, and had it first. I had at first encouraged her to take Deceptive Shot so she could spend two Swifts to make an opponent flat-footed. Since she has Sneak Attack and Dastardly Strike, that seemed like it would be a great idea. However, after looking at her character, she is trained in Deception and Stealth with very high bonuses in both. I'm now thinking it might be a bit overkill for her to take Deceptive Shot since she can simply use Deception to create a diversion to hide and then make a Stealth check. I think you can use this even if your opponent's aware of you, can you not? This could mean that she could create a diversion to hide even if her opponents are aware of her and she has nothing to hide behind. Yes? No? Uh, she could simply move quickly out of view, maybe behind them, uh, you know, behind their back or something. She wouldn't necessarily need an object to hide behind, right? Um, maybe again, a, man, I, I, I don't know. In, in my opinion, I'm going to agree with Rodney. I think it's very situational. I, I, to hide from me, she would need cover or concealment. I mean, to creating a diversion to hide grants neither, but I mean, even with cover and concealment handy, like you were saying, Rodney, you can't just automatically hide if someone's staring at you. They're, they're staring right at you. Um, right. I mean, if you could, then snipe would be useless. Uh, and that's where, that's where that deception check comes in. That's where creating a diversion to hide. I mean, it lets you basically fake someone out so their attention is diverted. Maybe you you know, you know uh, throw your voice or you toss a rock and they look away from you for a brief moment. So then you can use the cover or concealment you have to hide. Um, so, I mean, that's why feigning is so terribly useful, at least in my opinion, because there's no cover needed, no concealment needed, no stealth, no dis nothing. You just a deception as a means to directly deny someone their decks. Um, not allow for another skill check that might do the same thing. So, I mean, I think Deceptive Shot's a brilliant choice for a character with Snake Attack and Dastardly Strike. But, I mean, I, what's your take on that, Rodney? Do you think, I mean, when someone uses the, the uh, you know, Deception to create a diversion to hide, I mean, do they need, should they have the ability to hide handy? Should they have cover or concealment, something to that effect? Yeah, there, I mean, at a certain point, you have to really think about it. I mean, if, if you're in this theoretical gymnasium where you're shooting each other and you have no cover concealment, you know, can someone really go, what's that over there, and then suddenly disappear? That really <laughs> kind of stretches it. I would say that as a, as a general rule, um, creating a diversion to hide is more like, you know, okay, I can, uh, I, I can create my diversion, make my stealth check, and then if I haven't moved behind something that's providing cover or concealment at that point, then that's when that whole, you know, okay, he's in my line of sight, um, you know, I, I make my, my uh, perception check as a reaction to his stealth check. I'm probably going to make it at that point, you know, once they have un, un, uh, unblocked line of sight to me. Rather, what this, what the creative deception to hide is more for, okay, I'm out in the open, I create my deception, I make my stealth check, you know, by the end of that action where I'm moving around behind cover, I now have cover, I've stealthed, and I have effectively made him unaware of where I went for a short period of time. Whereas if you stay out from behind cover, you're going to end up, you know, being spotted basically instantly as a reaction. Makes sense. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the the dastardly strike sneak attack deceptive shot combo is a great character option for a, a really you know an interesting a well-planned character basically so i would encourage her to go with that as well i think that that's that's a good option but very yeah. cool yeah um, <clears throat> now we had a, we had a great question posted up by alex van d on our forums and he says okay i've got a dark jedi that's attempting to far see a member of my party 
under what circumstances does the PC get a chance to rebuke it? Now, I've just said, you know, oh, you feel a tingle at the base of your spine. Someone is using the force on you. You may rebuke it and go from there. I haven't told the PC what it is yet because obviously they haven't exceeded on the rebuke attempt. Can they rebuke farcing? Under what conditions does that occur? Well, I mean, just from the book, I mean, looking per, per the wording of rebuke, I would say it's perfectly valid. But, I mean, however, the the ambiguity, and here's here's where my my kind of I feel the ambiguity is, is that as far as I can see for it to make sense, to take a reaction, like rebuke, I mean, you usually have to be aware of the action that triggers the reaction, you know? Uh, you can't deflect if you're flat-footed, you know, stuff like that. Um, and nowhere in far-seeing description does it note that the target is aware of your attempts to glimpse them. Glimpse them. But then again, I mean, it, it makes sense that they would be. Okay, but then it doesn't. I mean, like, it, it, okay, is the is the corrupt senator going to feel me looking in on him if I'm far-seeing? Probably not. Is a Sith Lord? Uh, well, yeah, quite probably. Um, so, I mean, these are, uh, but then, then again, these are assumptions based on nothing in either power description. But they're good assumptions, in my opinion. I mean, so if, if I was ruling it in my game, I would say, okay, someone being targeted with far seeing who has an active use of rebuke in his suite available, um, as you put it, great RPing, by the way, uh, feels a tingling at the base of his spine, and he can sense that a force power is being directed at him. Um, and give him the immediate chance to spend his rebuke. But I would say run it properly. I mean, if he rebukes well enough, and this is cool, he, he would actually turn the far-seeing back on the originator. I mean, potentially, like, getting a glimpse through the force of who exactly is spying on him. And that's really freaking cool. I mean, uh, I mean, if that, you know, I, I think that's a really great option. Um, what do you think, Rodney? Yeah, I actually think that's fine. I am a big fan of um, player game master transparency, and if a player basically is is uh, farseed upon, I think it's okay to say, you know what, you, you think that someone's trying to peer in on you at the force, and you think that if you wanted to, you could either block that, i.e. rebuke without uh, reflecting it, or even reach out through the force and see them instead, right? So the idea being, you know, that your, your player probably should have the most information available to him. Now, that having been said, if it's a key part of your plot that your player not know that, you can always just say, you know, the basically that that farcing attempt, um, you know, they could probably rebuke it, but maybe not turn it back on them or whatever, if it's really that critical to your plot. Although, to be honest with you, I think that it almost opens up a more interesting uh, story application to basically say, you know, you're being spied upon with the Force, you can turn it back on them, and then now what you've done is you've you've let your player see their enemy, right? And that plants yeah. a whole new array of adventure seeds in their minds, right? Now, you know, oh, well, why is this guy spying on me? We should find out who he is. We should find out where he is, etc. So, I I think that your game is probably served by just letting your player know exactly what's happening to them. Um, although, like I say, if you're the game master and you you really don't want your players to you know be rebuking this farcing, why are you really using it on them in the first place? Right? I mean that having a having an evil dark Jedi use farcing on you seems like. Um, a poor justification for whatever information it is that they might gather, right? I mean, it seems like the bad guy could come by that information by pretty much whatever means you want to. So the only reason you would really have the uh, the villain using farseeing on your hero is, you know, to make your hero aware of that fact, right? I, I think that that plants a seed in your player's mind that um, is actually going to end up enhancing your game. 
excellent. I, I, I agree completely. I think I think the the opportunity for story advancement and role playing is just tremendous. And I'm sorry, the idea of a of a sort of farcing affecting both parties with a you know let's say let's say that the farcier actually rebukes it back himself. That could be really cool. So you have these two people like staring at each other through the force, you know, eyeing each other. I don't know. I think that's really cool. Um, so yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I'd like to jump back real quick. Um, yeah. I finally found exactly what it was I was looking for earlier. Um, when we were talking about the stealth checks and hiding when they're basically in this open gymnasium or whatever, mm-hmm. I think the key thing to remember is in the perception skill, you have this the following line. If the target is attempting is actively attempting to remain undetected, your perception check is opposed by the target's stealth check. Well, it... Making a stealth check by itself is not what I would consider to be actively attempting to remain uh, undetected, right? I mean, a rolling a stealth check is not necessarily just this magical thing that allows you to hide while you're out in the open, right? Your target needs to be making some attempt to remain undetected, and I think that what that really boils down to is, is that person hiding behind something? Has that person slipped into the shadows? Has he moved into the column of smoke that's appeared, right? That's, that is actively making an attempt to hide or to remain undetected, right? Um, rolling a d20, making a skill check is not necessarily the act that is, is you attempting to remain undetected. It's something that happens while you're doing that, right? Just, you know, just like uh, making a, uh, I don't know, making an acrobatics check doesn't by itself mean that you're doing something acrobatic. It's something that you do when you attempt to do something acrobatic. I know that's a subtle distinction, but I think that you have to look at it like this. You have to look at it like, you know, I am taking this action and I make this skill check as a part of this action and actively re- attempting to actively remain undetected means you know I am taking some action to hide right and that might be diving behind these crates that might be you know any one of those other things that I mentioned and the stealth check is just a part of that so you know if you're if if you want to make a stealth check but you try and stay out in the open I would argue that you're not making any special effort to avoid detection because making a stealth check first of all is pretty boring and uh, uh, you know not very cinematic on its own to just say okay I make a stealth check. Well, it's a what component are you doing? of a larger cinematic. Yes, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I would say that you know if your target isn't doing something other than making a skill check, you know, making a skill check is not is not enough, right? You need to be doing something to remain undetected. Fantastic. And there you go. There we go. There we go, Dave. We have chat room badness. Is the server down for UStream? Yeah, it's it's a it's a UStream issue. The chat room's not going to hear me anyway. So even if I apologize to him, oh well. But um, yeah, I'm working on it. Okay, cool beans. Well, let's continue on. So they can't hear us anymore in the chat room. Nope. No. Well, how sad. I know. We'll, we'll be back on soon. Um, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, but. Um, Last question I got. I got. Uh, I got an email this week from Orion Destroyer in Atlanta, uh, who asked the following question. He says, "Hey guys, just found the podcast and I love it. Great stuff. I have a rules question for you, and I hope you can help. Uh, this came up when a player of mine took issue with an NPC using negate energy. Now, negate energy says you can spend a force point to heal the damage that you negate, which I did with our boss in the last game." I rolled really high on his use the force check, and he negated 31 points of damage, then spent a force point to heal that much. My player got really pissed. 
And then after the game, he called me out saying that the rules say you can only spend a force point on your turn, so he couldn't spend one on negate energy. But it says that you can do this in the power. How does that work? Help me order 66. You're my only hope. Thank you, guys. Um, well, okay, Orion. Okay, uh, there's several issues here, but on the surface, um, this seems kind of like a quandary. Uh, force powers such as negate energy and rebuke are both reactions, i.e. not on your turn, and both do have the option to spend a force point to modify them. And I assume that you're referring to the uh, the using force points section on page 93 of the core rulebook, which starts off by saying that you can spend a force point on your turn. But there's two, well, okay, actually three things to consider here for me. One, the on your turn reference is specifically talking about spending a force point to modify a role. Okay, it would be a leap to assume that applies to other uses. And two, I mean, as is called out at the very beginning of the book, usually a specific rule trumps a general one. So since the force power specifically says, specifically verbatim, that you can spend a force point on it, then you can, despite a general ruling to the contrary. And three, dude, you're the freaking GM. Your player sounds like he was simply pissy and angry and angsty and looking for a peg to hang his wine jacket on. Okay, I mean, remember that. Remind your player that he can do this too. Okay, sheesh. Um, that, that's kind of my my opinion on that. I mean, Rodney, what, uh, can you enlighten us any? Sure. And this is actually um, a discussion that. Uh, well, I would like to say it's a discussion, but it's really more me talking to myself that I had. <laughs> that's um, a valid discussion. <laughs> during the development of Knights of the Republic, um, we basically, or I basically uh, took a look at it, and there was that rule that you can't spend a force point when it's not your turn. The, the Effectively, the way it works is unless an effect specifically calls out an exception to that rule, then you go with the, with, with the general rule, right? Exactly. So basically, negate energy is an exception to the general rule, which is, you know, you can only spend force points on your turn. Now, Realizing kind of after the fact that we had uh, put that in there, because when we when we first designed the you know the force point rules and everything, it was a little bit different um, every time we went through it, and, it, and that that only spend force points on your turn thing was one of those uh, things that kind of snuck in there between iterations. That when I was you know working on it, so the Republic, I was like, okay, this is something we need to remedy a little bit, and so. Uh, that's where you get the force readiness feat that lets you spend force points when it's not your turn. Right. Um, that Crazy. basically, that itself effectively becomes an exception to the general rule as well. So, basically, the you know what what happened there um, was it Orion was the the yes. guy that yeah okay. So what happened there was Orion was absolutely correct. He could totally do that because it's specifically called out in Negate Energies. Um, negate energy's text as an exception to the general rule. And I do want to say one more thing. I grew up in Chattanooga, which is really, really close to Atlanta, so go Falcons, go Braves. And that's all. <laughs> well, I'm sure Orion appreciates that. So thank you, Orion. And in thank fact, you. I, I'm sitting here right now in a yep. Falcons jersey. Oh, see? So, big shout out to, uh, to uh, our boys down in Hotlanta. So, yeah. <laughs> I know we have a few listeners out there. 
So thank you for the question, Orion. Thank you, Rodney, for answering it. And um, if you guys have any questions out there you'd like to send the podcast, um, you can, of course, email us, gmchris at d20radio.com or gmdave at d20radio.com. You can also post them up on the forums at d20radio.com slash forum. Or you can even, Dave, call the Lucid line, which is, of course... Hello, you there? Oh, I'm thinking it's 206-600-5872. I'm sorry, I'm... I'm trying to get oh, the chat room te- going. Tech I'm trying Wizard's to get, working hard, man. Yeah, are are we like, back up on the chat room? Now? Yeah, the chat room's back up again. Awesome. Yeah. See? Very, very nice. Is that is that Total Recall I hear in the background? It is Total Recall. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm back to sci-fi because I ran through all my game shows. Oh, well, it's okay. I don't think any of us are going to begrudge. Uh, yeah. Begrudge aren't. Um, you know, I doubt we're ever going to play it. Um, because it doesn't relate to what we do at all. But one of the great little bumpers that Sam sent us of his work was a, um, a version of uh, bits and pieces of Conan the Barbarian oh, redone. Yeah. yeah. And he does the best Arnold Schwarzenegger I've ever heard. Uh, it's it's really good, you know. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's uh, very fantastic. Well, wow. anyway, well... I'll tell you what, Rodney. If you're ready, man, let, let's let's get to the meat of why we've got you on the cast this evening. And um, oh wait, and, hold on. I mean, I need to play something better for Rodney. Oh oh okay okay okay. Well, special treatment. Okay, we can go on now. Oh, uh, let's see. Now, Thank Rodney, you. was that worth it? Yeah, you know, I gotta tell you though, you guys do everything in your power to try and give me a big, huge, inflated head, and I have to basically go hang out with all my friends so they can bust me down a few notches every time I do a show here. So that's okay. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what: if, when we hang out personally, I'll bust you down a few notches too. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, dude, we're here to talk about scum and villainy, which of course hits the streets. What November eighteenth, Tuesday? Um, Although a few people do uh, do already have it because they're you know lucky like that, and so let's talk, man. A lot of us have been really really excited about this book. I know this was one of my my favorite uh, books um, from the Weg days, but mostly because I, I really like playing scoundrels a lot. Um, so let's let's start off by talking about before we get into some detail. Talk about making the book, man. What was the experience like? I mean, creating this book. I mean, how did you? You know, what was your thought process going into it? What were you guys hoping to achieve when you wrote it? Well, so as a lot of people on the Wizards of the Coast forums have already kind of uh, started to figure out, in a lot of ways, Scum and Villainy is my love letter to the old West End Games uh, <laughs> role-playing game. Because yeah, yeah. when I, like you, when I played the West End Games uh, role-playing game, my favorite archetype was always the smuggler, the scoundrel, the tramp freighter pilots and everything. And that was actually a huge component of that game's identity, right? I, I'm sure that yeah. oh, uh, yeah. everyone that's played it before you know, recognizes the fact that the game was very much built around that premise, right? In fact, more than being a game dedicated to um, general Star Wars role-playing, you really got a very strong vibe right away that your best bet um, for playing the game was play this... um, play the crew of a tramp freighter because I mean, they had everything even in the core book right everything in the core book was like you know here's a way to get a here, here's a way to get a ship you know when you first start your character bat, had, yeah. 
Lone Shark, right? And now, granted, obviously the system was very flexible and would allow you to do, you know, all manner of different things. Uh, but I, I always kind of got that distinct vibe. And then you had books like Galaxy Guide Six, Tramp Freighters, or Galaxy Guide Eleven, Fragments from the Rim, or um, Richard Hives of Scum and Villainy, or you know, any of these other uh, great West End source books that really, really expanded out the. Uh, the fringe side of things, and that's a—it's it, an aspect of the Star Wars universe that has a lot of fans too, right? I mean, who doesn't love Han Solo, right? And exactly. There's a reason why Boba Fett is one of the most popular characters, right? There are a lot of people out there that really like the fringe, me included. So basically, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, Scum and Villainy is the the first book in the Star Wars line that I got to. Um, I really felt like I got to add to the schedule by myself, right? Because, like, we, we knew before I even got hired at Wizards that we wanted to do uh, Starship of the Galaxy. We knew that we wanted to do Force Unleashed. We knew that we wanted to do Nice Little Republic. And then I basically said, okay, here's my idea. So Scum and Villainy was effectively a pitch from me to uh, the powers that be uh-huh. and basically said, here's, the, here's the, the kind of book I want to do. This is the kind of book that I've been waiting to have in... You know, Star Wars role-playing game ever since the West End games days. So it is definitely 100% my uh, I heart West End games source book. <laughs> Although, obviously, you know, boy, this is going to sound uh, kind of funky, but obviously, I said, you know, I really love these books. I want to see if I can do them better, right? So um, this was a this was a chance for me to basically create my ultimate universe version of. Uh, you know, all those nice fringe source books. So that was sort of the impetus behind the design. And then uh, taking that and then mixing it with a healthy dose of uh, the way we've done books on the Star Wars line so far and kind of um, making sure that while it would while it would be, you know, using a lot of elements from those old West End game source books, it also had its own identity and was designed for the Star Wars Saga Edition rules and right. really, you know, designed to... Bring that feel to the game that we everybody already plays, right? So, um, yeah, that was that was sort of the genesis of the idea was take an element of the role playing game that I personally, and then I also think a lot of other people really love, and really flesh it out. And I, I know I mentioned this uh, when I was on the show before Knights of the Old Republic came out, but my idea is that basically, you know, you take the core rulebook, you take your era campaign guide, and then you take a book like Scum and Villainy, and you mix those three up, and that basically gives you your fringers on the edges of society in the Knights of the Old Republic setting campaign, right? So it's basically a you know, you combine those three elements to create whatever your campaign turns out to be. Well, it's, it's safe to say, I guess, then, that this would be, uh, I mean, from what you've just said, it's safe to say that this would be kind of your uh, your favorite, the favorite book you've worked on to date, or at least at least in terms of your personal commitment to it. Uh, possibly. You know, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, Scum and Villainy is the first book in the line that I also didn't do initial design on. Basically the way um, the books are designed is we have uh, initial design is where freelancers then usually myself take chunks of the book and design them and then that all comes back to me and I do um, I do what's called development on it, right? Well this time basically they I, I farmed out the initial design to Gary and Rob and Owen and JD and when that came back I went in and filled in the gaps and, and unified everything and kind of um, dedicated my uh, my time to kind of uh, making sure that everything came out just the way it wanted to be, right? Right. So um, 
while I didn't do initial design on it, I did end up doing about the same amount of uh, design work as I do on any other book, just because I would put in, okay, two pages here, three pages there, you know, whereas before, my design work was like, okay, I did the equipment section and the starship section in Knights of the Republic, and then I did, you know, the Force chapter and this and that and Force Unleashed, right? This one was more like, more like getting my fingers into every different side of, of the book, and so I think they're might be only one chapter in the book that I don't have design in uh, and that is just developed, but uh, that might also be wrong as well. Okay, well then speaking of the development, I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, Owen, JD, Rob, uh, Gary, in terms of the guys who worked on the book with you, in terms of the, you know, the, the authors, mm-hmm. the, the co-workers, the contributors, I mean, how was the relationship working with them? How did you, you know, who did you, who were you glad to bring in that maybe you haven't worked with before? Who were you glad to have back? Um in terms of, I mean, I mean, in terms of your your, your development staff on it, um, tell us a little bit about that. So, um, actually, the nice part about this book was that everyone that worked on it was someone that I'd worked with closely in the past. Um, Gary had already worked on Starship of the Galaxy with me. Uh, Rob Schwab and I go way back. Not only do we both do we both live in Tennessee before I moved out here. Uh, but also, uh, I did a lot of work for Green Onion Publishing, and Rob was the D20 developer on there. Uh, Obviously, Owen and I worked together on the core rule book, and then uh, JD and I worked together on my first uh, book ever, which was the Hero's Guide for the Star Wars D20 uh, revised system. And so uh, every one of these guys was someone I'd worked with before, and it was nice. And that's kind of why I was able to not do initial design on it. I was able to basically hand it over to these guys because I knew that they would produce something that turned out to be what I was expecting, and then I could just go in and fill in the gaps, which is pretty much exactly what happened. Awesome. Now... In terms of, I mean, when you guys were coming together, I mean, obviously you say you set out some general design points. You kind of give them what you what you wanted to know. Yes. One of the things, and maybe maybe I'm wrong in interpreting this, but tell me if I am, um, or tell me if, no comment either way. It seems to me from what I've been reading that you guys have been listening to the fans. There's been a lot of things in this book that people have been screaming for uh, for a long time in terms of just basic book design, uh, most notably an index. <laughs> um, and included adventures as well. Well, so it's it's always a fine line to walk between, you know, listening to feedback that we get from um, the people that are playing the game and also having, you know, to take into account that there's not... that the larger consensus of a message board might not always be what's best for the game. Now, some things like an index was really easy. People were like, hey, we'd really like to have an index, and so it, you know, when we started out to do initial design, I just said, okay, I'll budget two pages for an index, and you know, no big deal there, right? Or like, uh, the other thing that happens a lot is people will request something that I've already set in motion, right? And I can't always say, oh yeah, that's coming, because we, you know, we can't always reveal what's coming out, and then, you know, if plans change, then uh, people get upset. But, for example, the adventure thing, I knew when we first started working on the product line that we were going to have to have adventures, right? I mean, people have to have adventures to play, right. but... It's difficult to do standalone adventures for the Star Wars line, and you know there's there's a lot of reasons why that is. But basically, I knew that it was going to be challenging to get a, a, a standalone adventure. So when I when I pitched the book to uh, Bill Slavicsek, who's actually my boss and the head of RPG R and D, I basically said, you know, we really need to get some adventure content out there because people need to play it. And Donna Defiance is fine, but 
let's I mean j- just to be completely honest um, the number of people that download Dawn of Defiance is a mere fraction of the number of people that buy a book right so if you think about you know how many people out there are really getting their hands on adventures we knew we had to do something in published form so I was able to basically say okay we want to give people some adventure content and I wanted to give them a good full-length adventure so that's why the basically scum and villainy was originally I had thought about it. I was like okay this would be like a 160 page book and then I said well you know could we put like you know 60 more pages of adventures in there and and run with it right and so basically we've got one full length adventure and then we have a lot of uh, they're effectively four page mini adventures that are designed to be a a single night's worth of uh, play or you know it might turn out to be two or three game sessions worth but we just wanted to give Game Masters some stuff so that they didn't have to do as much work on their own. I mean, I know a lot of people prefer to create their own adventures, and I'm the same way, but... Well, it's um, time-consuming, to say the least. I right. Mean, sure. I mean, exactly. since I love running Dawn of Defiance, and I've got a couple Dawn of Defiance games running right now, is because that, you know, I mean, in terms of my own timing mean, with the podcast and everything else, I really only have time to throw myself into developing one or two games, which I do. But, you know, for especially folks who run a lot of games or don't have the time, I mean, I can I can see it. Now, I understand if you really can't confirm or deny, but is this something that we can perhaps expect to see more of a trend in in future books that are coming out? I wouldn't call it a trend, but this won't be the last time that you see a book in this format. If I have my druthers now, uh, obviously I can't speak to any specifics, but um, and especially if people like the format, right? There's yeah. a very good chance it'll happen again, and I am planning on it happening again. But of course, like I say, you always have to take into effect that plans don't always come out the way you want them to. Um, although, like I say, this seems to be a good format for getting adventures out there because we give you 160 pages of, pages of really, really crunchy stuff, and then we give you a nice chunk of adventure content as well. Fair enough, fair enough. So, I mean, I, I like that a lot. It's fantastic that you guys are doing that finally. And I was really pleased that we, not, as you mentioned, not only is there, the full, is there a full adventure in the book, but you have what the what they call these, you know, these couple-page mini-adventures, you know, that you yes. can you can call from if you need to. I think that's a, that's a marvelous, marvelous idea. Yeah. Now, so the the sorry to to interrupt you, but kind of the the genesis of those mini adventures was um, my big thing was when I ran the smuggler campaign or the bounty hunter campaign. What always happened a lot of times was the first few adventures that we'd have, we'd do smuggling and bounty hunting, and then we'd get into the larger plot with you know oh, now we're working for the rebellion, now we're working for you know whatever, and there wouldn't actually be a lot of smuggling or bounty hunting or whatever going on, despite the fact that we would say, oh, we're smugglers, oh, we're bounty hunters. So these mini-adventures are sort of designed to be something that the Game Master can take and insert one of these uh, you know, somewhere in their campaign and let their smuggler characters actually do some smuggling. Let their bounty hunter characters actually do some bounty hunting and not have it actually interrupt the main plot and not have it be something that takes up like four full sessions. It's just a nice break in the action because everybody has that point where you know they have a break in their, their longer full-length adventures that they can insert something like this into. So it's it's sort of a way for us to say, you know what, if you want to run a smuggler campaign, you guys are, you the game master, are going to worry about the larger overarching plot. We're going to worry about giving you enough stuff to insert in the gaps so your players still feel about, feel like they're doing bounty hunting and that they're doing smuggling, etc. That's a request that I know I've had from my own players. 
is that they're saying, hey man, can we you know go off plot? I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. You know, when you when you're when you're building a, an epic campaign and you have this you know sort of overarching plot, it's often hard to you know just take the time to, to take the break or insert that. So I think that's a marvelous resource. Now, in terms of the the other crunch that's in the book, I mean, obviously you know it's 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 a new a new guide a new a new setting guide basically or a supplement we've got you know the usual new species new prestige classes stuff like that and a lot of us are really excited about it um now i know there's several new species in the book i mean i know the the um particular i've read that there's the the blood carvers uh the claudites which that i can't wait to see the stats on that um the feline of course um like the gan the jawa um like rind toydarian which i'm happy about and ubis um that's right in terms of the new species, do you have a favorite of anything that's in the new book? And if so, why? Wow, that's really hard. So the nice thing about the way we're doing these uh, formats is that I get to pick uh, these species that I think are interesting and contribute something kind of cool to the game, right? And plus, mm -hmm. also, it's a great chance to get a little bit of lore out there on maybe some species that haven't got a lot of attention. So it's hard for me to pick a favorite. Um, the Gand have a really, really soft spot in my heart for a number of reasons. One, I love, really loved Oral from the Rogue, Rogue Squadron novels. Yeah. But the other thing about the Gand that I really like is that, uh, gosh, this is going to sound really cheesy, but when um, I was in high school, I ran a Star Wars D6 game for my brother who is, he's like four years younger than me, and so he was like in junior high, and he played a uh, he played a Gand Jedi, uh, and of course this was before Episode One had come out, so we were just kind of making it up as we go along. And he played a Gand Jedi, and ever since then I've really wanted to, you know, make sure that the Gand have an interesting place in my campaign. So uh, that's the the Gand have a special place in my heart because of my brother's uh, Jedi character, Vilks Krig was the character's name. Vilks Krig, very nice. Yes, yeah. and uh, <laughs> so let's see here, what else? The Rin are in here. I I always really liked the Rin as a nice Bothan alternative. Um, the uh, One of the cool things about the Rin in here that I don't think has been mentioned on the forums is uh, they've got a sidebar out beside their uh, species introduction yeah. that talks about their fortune telling using a Sabacc deck and it's an effectively a way that Rin can use the uh, use a deck of Sabacc cards to kind of tell the future like we see the Rin doing in the New Jedi Order novels. So that's... Uh, that's pretty. That, I thought that was a pretty fun little thing to throw in there. Okay, now I, I got to ask because you mentioned this. Is there any type of of uh, there's? I know there's been an outcry on not only on our own forums but obviously Watis as well for people saying, "Hey, uh, can we play Sabak? Is there any type of, of of rule or anything like that for Sabak playing? Or is it really um, more of a fluff entrance? See, the thing about it is, if we had the nice. Uh, like 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 if we could do like a standalone Sabak game, I think that would be probably the best venue for it. Exactly. Trying to put rules in the uh, in 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 the game for specifically playing Sabak, it's kind of a slippery slope. And it, it I've I've also um, it, it's something I kind of internally debate with myself every now and then. It's the same debate I actually have about slicing. And we actually I think mm -hmm. you guys talked about this last week. If you put a, a what effectively becomes a mini game in there for slicing or for um, playing sabak, then what oftentimes ends up happening, and it doesn't have to be this way, but what oftentimes ends up happening is one or two players basically 
capitalize the Game Master's time to play this minigame while everybody else sits around. Now, one of the things that I tried to do with the third adventure in the Dawn of Defiance campaign is make playing Sabacc something that you do as a character, but also give every other player something to do at the same time. So I kind of feel like slicing and playing Sabacc are two things that are best served as being part of an adventure and maybe not their own rule subset. Although, you know, there's nothing to say in the future that might not change. Well, hey, you know, in, in my fever dreams, I can imagine kind of how uh, D&D came out with, of course, Three Dragon Ante and uh, right. um, more more recently the uh, the, uh, the dice game. Um, yes, uh, uh, Infighting. Uh, Infighting, thank you. Uh, yes, which I own both, and uh, they're a lot of fun. And we've actually used Three Dragon Ante in some of my D&D games, uh, as no- most notably the players used it to divide spoils, which was fun. <laughs> So I now, can... believe me, I would love to do a product like that. Um, I have brought it up several times, and it's been sort of bounced around. So no promises, yes or no, right? But uh, <laughs> I have, I actually have, and I'm trying to find it here, see if I can find it in my desk, but I, it seems to be eluding me. I actually have a Sabacc deck that was made by the guys at the Star Wars Artist Guild uh, swag a while back. It's and, downloadable, uh, isn't it? The... Yeah, but um, the first year that they made it, we all met up at Gen Con, and uh, one of the guys had brought an actual printed-out deck that wow. was laminated and full, like, actual playing card size that I have and can use every now and then. So, um, yeah. Okay, that would be awesome. Wow, I've yep. je- jealousy. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so we, we have the new species. That That's very cool. Um, mm-hmm. Moving on to talents and talent trees. Um there's there's a few new talent trees that you guys introduced completely. Uh, I mean, like uh, there was like the disgrace talent tree for nobles, which looked really cool. Um, uh, new one for ice ice pilot and bounty hunter, master privateer, gunslinger. They all have some new talent trees. And right. then you you also introduced a whole slew, of, just a crapload of new talents for existing trees. Yes. And I mean, we've we've seen this this you know, happen obviously with the other books that have come out with with Force Unleashed, and we've seen it. We also saw it with Kotor, and um, it seems like this is the the trend you guys are going and and i'm i i guess at least online people have kind of two minds of this there's certain people that want you guys to create new classes which i personally am not a big fan of i think the five iconics are there and so it seems like to the the general motion has been okay well we want to introduce a new ability a new way of doing things we create a new talent for an existing tree or just a new tree altogether and that seems to be kind of the the meat of where where this is going i mean obviously the core mechanic here of this game in terms of what differentiates it from other d20 systems is the the idea of talents um and you know obviously got sort of a note to to the modern days but uh you know, I mean, tell us a little bit about you know what you guys' plans are, and, and in terms of how you're creating the new talents, and what all you're adding, and where your general goal is with that. Well, so we get to do so many fewer books than, say, Dungeons and Dragons does. That um, my philosophy in designing these books so far has been to hold nothing back, and if I think of something interesting that I want to see in a book, I want to put it in there, and most of the time. Um, if we're going to do a book, there's a good chance it's going to have a pretty high rate of player content in there. And by that, I mean things like talents, feats, prestige classes, and equipment for the simple fact that there's a lot that needs to be covered or, you know, a lot that could be covered and any kind of attempt to, you know, put it off or... Uh, you know, set on the back burner or put it in a you know a different book dedicated just to that seems like not only does it force the 
players out there to have to wait even longer, but it also seems, you know, like like we're kind of trying to compartmentalize everything too much. And really, yeah. when you talk about a book like Scum and Villainy, what you're really talking about is this is a book that's about, you know, campaigns set on the fringe, and players are a huge part of a campaign, right? They are, they are the driving force behind your campaign in a lot of ways. So... You know, if I want to create a book that comprehensively covers life on the fringe, I've got to address the players just as much, or at least that's my my personal opinion about it. Um, same with Nice Little Republic, right? Or or the Era books, right? When you do a book about a topic, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's troubling to try and you know, divide, oh, well, this is a Game Master book or this is a player book when players and Game Masters both have to participate in these campaigns. That makes so, sense, yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems there's this active role to, to make it sort of, as you said earlier, uh, you know, that you're a big believer in, in GM player transparency. Yeah. And, and it seems that that clearly extends to, you know, book design as well. Um, sure. I, I, now, I, obviously, I, I don't. I don't want people to read the adventures, right? Of but, course not. No. I, yeah, but I mean, I, you know, I, I love the Wake system. You know, I, I cut my teeth on it back in the day, and it was a lot of fun. But to kind of analyze it, you know, it, it, which is, of course is easy to, easy to do twenty twenty hindsight. One mm. of the pratfalls I thought they experienced was that you had this division of, and, and to a lesser extent, I would say this also occurred in third edition D anD D, where to to a lesser extent you had this. You, you had books that were produced specifically really had almost a little to no use for player value and and when it comes down to it a book that's strictly for strictly for GM use well, GMs are gonna buy it but that only comp- that only constitutes a seventh of the player base you know technically sure so you know it's yeah I, I think it's I think it's a smart move not only a, a smart but also a fair move to to create supplements that cater to both sides of that screen so well I, I won't tell you that there's not a you know that 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 hasn't crossed our minds, right? But by the same token, right? I mean, I I feel like I'm a mechanical designer and developer uh, as much as I am a you know story designer and developer. So when we have good ideas for, or what we think are good ideas to go in these books, you know, I don't really feel like making the distinction between a player book and a game master book. And you know, the other thing too is right if if we only have six books coming out a year, and mm. you know, a player has to wait three months between books right now as it is, or two months between books right now as it is, you know, that's already kind of a little a, a long wait when you compare it to other lines like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. If they had to wait six months between a book that they were interested in, or nine months between a book they were interested in, that doesn't seem very fair to the player either. So. You know, when a new book comes out, I want anyone that's a Star Wars role-playing game fan to find some utility out of it. And that's that makes sense. It's a good philosophy to have. So moving moving us beyond the talents, obviously, um, there's a lot of new feats in the book. Obviously, like like to, I think to, like almost almost thirty new feats, um, and it's the same amount of feats. And I really haven't had a chance to obviously I don't have a, I don't have a copy of the book yet. I have not had a chance to really look at them or read any of them. Um, but uh, someone told me that one of the things I really liked that we saw a lot more of in terms of, of KOTOR and Force Unleashed is that we had a lot more feats that applied to, I guess, non-combat roles, um, in particular skill, skill use feats. And obviously this is scum and villainy, and then we're talking about scoundrels and other fringe characters that are often very skillful characters. Um, what was your, I mean, your general design in terms of when you guys were creating new feats, and do you have any, a, a feat or two that you really, really like out of the new book? Sure. Well, so feats are kind of funny in that um, 
they sort of serve two roles. On the one hand, they sort of serve as little tweaks to your character, and on the other hand, they serve as a venue for non-class-specific abil- abilities, right? Like the tech specialist um, right. talent, or feat was something that wouldn't really work on a talent tree because we wanted it to be accessible to several different classes. Exactly. Um, so they sort of they sort of serve two masters there, and it it works sometimes and it doesn't other times. As far as adding more quote unquote non combat feats, it's not a I wouldn't call it a priority by any stretch, but it's obviously something I'm mindful of, um, especially when you you know are trying to make like noble NPCs or scoundrel NPCs that you know when you at a certain point you're looking at going okay what feat should I give this guy right well I don't really want to give him you know power attack because he doesn't make melee attacks and so I'm always looking for feats that serve archetypes well um, so I always you know want to try and find a feat that that will help me flesh out a character concept and if I can also make it you know a, a very useful feat then you know, in either in combat or out of combat, and that's fine. But also, you know, frankly, we've tried to put an influence on using skills in combat as well. So um, there's hopefully going to be a lot of people out there picking up these feats that are useful in a variety of situations. Um, cool. As for favorites, let's see here. Um, I'm looking at my book right now. I do. I did like the. Um, and this is gonna sound weird because I kind of wrote them, but I liked the uh, the species uh, feats for the shapeshifters, the Clawnites, because yeah. they kind of let you do some different funky things with it. And um, so that was uh, we've got I think three in here that are Clawnite specific feats, maybe a few more. Um, not entirely certain if that's it. And then um, yeah, I, I'd say that those are probably my my favorites in here, also because I'm a bit partial to Clawnites as well. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Who doesn't want to play a shapeshifter, you know? Yeah. So, okay, aside from that, I mean, looking at... Uh, moving on, obviously, we get into new prestige classes. Now, there were there were three, from what I can tell, new prestige classes in this book. There's the Assassin, the Charlatan, and the Outlaw. Yes. Um, which are, are very, very cool. Now, I'm, I'm really interested to talk kind of a little bit about... Uh, just a little bit about each one of them. The Assassin itself, I mean, we have obviously some talent trees for existing classes that, that lead you towards that path. Um, but, I mean, it seems like this is kind of a different a different game. And, you know, obviously you say your, your love for the Claudite. I mean, was this kind of sort of inspired by someone like Zamweasel? Or, um, you know, what, what were you guys going for with that? Yeah, in a lot of ways. So there's one of the things that we've been trying to kind of figure out is the balance between when do we want to make a new prestige class and when do we just want to make a new talent tree. And usually... Uh, that boils down to something like, um, you know, do we want to make a new class feature, for example, or do we want, or, or do we really want to make this prestige class that much more powerful, right? Um, one advantage that creating a new prestige class has is that you can kind of see how its talents are going to work in a more self-contained environment. So, for example, the assassin was one that I, I knew. I kind of wanted them to... I really wanted the Assassin to play just a little bit differently than your Bounty Hunter or whatever. So I I like um, the way the Assassin works in... in um, some of its talents, for example, have to do uh, with firing at targets that aren't at point-blank range, right? So it's... Uh, it, it's designed to be more like your long-range assassin, whereas your bounty hunter is more likely to get up in people's faces. And then also, uh, we have the Jino Haradin talent tree uh, for the assassin that is more about manipulating your opponent than you would expect out of a uh, 
out of a bounty hunter. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Now the Charlotte and Player Stage class is is looks looks really interesting to me. Um, now I've read some. Con, I guess conflicting information in terms of what it does. I mean, I've I've gotten a brief description of some of the talents in it. Tell us a little bit about what what I guess that class's prestige class's role is supposed to be in terms of, of that. Sure. So the the charlatan is very much the outgrowth of the scoundrel noble that focuses on social skills. Um, he focuses on things like distractions and uh, causing disturbances and stuff like that. So the charlatan is more like it, it's basically an extension of the of the noble talents and the scoundrel talents that let you use your persuasion and deception to wreak havoc on the battlefield. Cool. That that's really exciting to me because I think that. I mean, I, I think when you're one of the more frustrating scenarios you have with a lot of, you know, perhaps players and GMs that are a little less experienced with incorporating that stuff on the fly is that you have players that are social characters that are, are get, get frustrated and they're kind of one trick ponies when it comes to combat. Um, ooh, I love the music. Uh, Dave, by the way, excellent background music. Yeah, no I, problem. I must say. <laughs> so, uh, Excellent work. You're awfully quiet, sir. Are you just doing your tech wizardry thing and trying to impress us with your sound mixing qualities? I'm just listening to you guys. It's awful hard for a third chair to get a word in edgewise. Ooh. Well, Dave, feel free to jump in anytime. I mean, if I'm <laughs> hogging your show here, man, go ahead. It's oh, cool, guy. It's oh, he's cool. got to deal with me every day. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the million miles a minute guy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the background music. It's very, very. I'm nice. having fun back here talking with the chat room. <laughs> okay. And well, lastly, sir, there's the outlaw, um, which I guess is pretty much iconic for the for the book when you get right down to it. So yeah, the outlaw is kind of this interesting. Um, it, it doesn't have as clearly defined um, niche as like an assassin does, for example. The outlaw is very much the the scoundrel equivalent of like the officer. And I when I say that, I mean in the sense that the officer is a very natural outgrowth of the noble. The, the outlaw is supposed to be more of a natural outgrowth of the scoundrel. So that it basically, it's like scoundrel to electric boogaloo in a lot of ways. <laughs> okay, Dave, we need to we need to cut that and just uh, and start open next week's show with it. Scoundrel, scoundrel to, to electric, electric boogaloo. boogaloo. <laughs> you know, actually, I think that's a pretty amazing title for this episode, although I, I had seriously considered, like, you know, something to do with 42, like, you know, so long and thanks for Rodney Thompson, you know, something to that effect. But Some, yeah. We'll come I, I don't know, Scoundrel it. 2, Electric Boogaloo is pretty... Uh, oh, wow. Uh, that, that's, that's a tough I, call. I, you know, here again, my, my thought pattern was simply episode 42, Don't Panic. Oh. So, you know, yeah. we'll figure that, it out. That, that's pretty good. <laughs> so before we get out of the um, the the character abilities section, yeah. there's one thing I'd like to, to mention that I actually don't think has really gotten talked about a lot out there. Um, Lay it on us. So, so in the class talents throughout the mm -hmm. uh, first chapter of the book, we included a new kind of talent that effectively is our answer to force powers for... Uh, non-force sensitives. And, and when I say that, I mean they're little per-encounter abilities that you get more than one of them by taking a single talent. Right? So like, you know, a force user takes the force training feat, gets like three uh, three force powers. Well, this is a talent that you can take that gives you three little per-encounter per abilities that really kind of speak to your character class and when what you do and also gives you a little bit more variety in your uh, abilities these uh, 
these talents, we, I can't remember exactly what we had nicknamed them there, during development, but they're basically the third tier talents. All of them have two prerequisites, but they uh, give you uh, three abilities that you can use each one of those three abilities once per encounter. And uh, I really think people are going to like these a lot because one, they reward you for sticking with a core class and going up a certain tree. And two, they also give people something a little bit better to do than, okay, I'm going to move over here and shoot this guy. Um, a lot of them are very much, you know, make an attack and something else happens. Right. So I think that players of all the different classes, the only class that doesn't get these, obviously, is Jedi. But the um, the four other classes get these talents, and I believe each uh, each class gets two of these. The Scoundrel might get three. No, each class gets two of these talents. Um, so I'd really like people to take a look at those when they pick up the book, because they're sort of... Um, something we want to do to reward people for making non-force users and give them some more exciting, hopefully, options in combat that don't necessarily rely on things like skill use or uh, or on the environment, right? The things that you can kind of lean to rely on being able to use every fight. Well, okay, now, so this is so this is a bit different. Like I know with now there are like per encounter abilities for non-force users in terms of uh, with star. I know with uh, starships of the galaxy we've got the starship tactics stuff. Right. Um, but this is a bit different beast. So th these are actually just abilities that are, I guess, like you can relate them almost to the the tactical feats from third edition D and D, where you have these little except they're they're per encounter, where you have these three things that you can do that are sort of hard coded into the feat itself. Sure, you you could make or that comparison. Excuse me. Yeah, you you could definitely make that comparison. They're they're designed to be a little bit more accessible than those tactical feats because they're they all have two talents as prerequisites that tactical uh, feats come were hard to get. <laughs> if I recall. Okay, now now to address the elephant in the room here in terms of this book, you said something just a minute ago. You said that obviously you want to, there's a lot in this book to reward people for playing non-force users. Right. There is only one force talent in this entire book. And other than that, there's there's scarce any other mention of the Force whatsoever. You are um, correct, sir. And I'm I for one am, am dancing a jig over that fact. But I mean, so I guess you, you may have already uh, clearly have already answered this question. It seems you guys were, were going for something that would say, okay, uh, you know, all of our books to this point. I mean, and out of necessity, we're talking about the Force unleashed, and you know, Jedi are a pretty hardcore component of Kotor. But you know, for in terms of the the setting and supplement books that have come out so far. I mean, that's pretty much been a key component is the force using stuff. So you guys wanted to take an active role to, to get away from that and and do something for the, you know, the four other classes that are out there, basically. Uh, kind of. So one of the thing that, things that uh, I've tried to do with the campaign guides is make sure that when a campaign guide comes out, it addresses every major player archetype, right? Because the, the, the campaign guide is designed to communicate how things are in a particular uh, time period, right? With this book... I really wanted to, to give some more options for non-Force users because just through the basic structure of what, the way the Force works in Saga Edition, any given encounter, a Force user is probably going to do a few more different things than a non-Force user will. So for example, even a Jedi who is very lightsaber focused is likely to use Surge or Battle Strike or Rebuke or something like that over the course of the encounter, whereas there are a lot of cases, right, where you have um, non-Jedi characters or non-Force using characters that a lot of their options come down to move and shoot, and and obviously we've, we've also got a lot of options in there that do more creative things than that, but I wanted to make it 
easier to see how to build a character that has lots of options on any given round, right? So uh, this book is really designed to uh, to help that out. And, you know, I basically looked at it and said, okay, it's pretty easy to make a Force user right now that does different things on each round, right? So now this book is designed to help people that don't play Force users find ways to do that. And, you know, the nice part about the way the talent system works out, too, is that you can really choose your complexity here, right? You can either choose to do different things on every round or, and take these feats that give you multiple options or, or, excuse me, these talents that give you multiple options, or you can build your gunslinger that really does boil down to move and shoot. But you know what? You're the best darn guy at moving and shooting you might possibly be. So uh, we, we really want to let players choose how much... They how much diversity they have in their tactics in a given encounter, and right now, uh, well, at least before the release of Scum and Villainy, it seemed a lot easier to give that choice to Force users than non-Force users. So, there you go. Fantastic. Now, obviously, moving on into the book, we get into equipment and starships. I know there's there. I noticed there was a, a couple new YTs that are statted out in here. Several uglies, um, as well. Um, now, as far as armors, I mean, one of my own players danced a jig when he found out there was going to be some Mando armor in here that was like non-Neo Crusader stuff, uh, yes. which he was extremely happy about because obviously he's not playing. We're not like he's playing a Mando in our current game, but we're not in in the Kotor era. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I, I, I've heard that the shadow suit is here. Oh, that's right. See, that was like my favorite, my my absolute favorite item from the RCR days. So. Uh, I'm very pleased that that got statted out. And um, I also kind of got a little bit of glee when I discovered that the deck sweeper was going to be in this in terms of of weaponry. Sure. Um, So I'm very interested to see how that works. But the big talk, of course, for equipment and everything else like that is stuff that you've alluded to. And, you know, initially, I guess when when, when KOTOR came out... uh, that there was there was the mention of of they, they had a small section on upgrades saying of course you know that went, you know refer to this when scum and villainy comes out so obviously there's upgrades that are now going to be available for armor weapons and like universal upgrades what can you tell us about how those are going to work and how they're going to i guess impact gameplay in that sense sure it's a lot like the uh starship upgrade system mm-hmm. in a lot of ways except um a little bit simpler, and the numbers are effectively a lot smaller, right? I mean, you're probably not going to make two or three modifications to your uh, suit of armor or, <laughs> or weapon, right? Whereas you might completely overhaul your starship. Um, but one thing we wanted to do was give the tinkerers out there, the people that are really the gearheads, give them some things to play with that... Um, you know, fit the Star Wars feel, right? And I mean, let's just be honest, right? Bounty hunters and, and, and guys like that, a lot of their character is wrapped up in their armor. So yeah. in the book, you're going to find you're going to find some universal upgrades that you can apply to everything. You're going to find upgrades that you can only apply to weapons and armor and uh, only uh, apply to, you know, just pieces of equipment. Um, they're all designed to sort of customize your weapon without really drastically changing how they work. So, for example, you know, if you're a sniper and you really want to, you know, modify your sniper rifle, you give it like a bipod and a really nice rangefinder. But that's probably all you're all you're going to do, right? right? Um, you're you're probably not going to completely change out everything about your weapon, if I had my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, at a certain point, you've 
uh, one of the neat things about these rules is that at a certain point, if you modify something too much, it effectively becomes an exotic weapon because you have completely right. altered the way it works. So the idea behind this was to give the bounty hunters and the gearheads something to play with without causing it to overshadow everybody else because in the end the ultimate goal and and the ultimate goal with things like the gear templates in Knights of the Republic is say you know if you want to use these you can do that if you want to just play with the blaster pistol out of the core rulebook with no modifications you're not going to be behind you're not going to be failing to compete with that guy that yeah. did get all your head on you right we want them to be equally viable options and hopefully um, people will find that these options do that for them I can't wait to see it. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoyed about Saga when it first came out was the fact that it went away from what you found with RCR was that you had, you know, oh, well, this is a, a Hyperbian blaster pistol and it, you know, a plus one in this situation, a minus one in this situation. You effectively had the 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 golf, for lack of a better term, the the, the golf club bag of, of weapons that, you know, somebody would pull out for a specific use for a specific situation. And um, it seemed there was a much more general feel here that, that got away from that that effect which I, I was kind of sick with but as as we've been playing a lot of us have been playing this since its inception you know we're, we're missing certain things in terms of the you know the slight custom ability, customization and um, uh, personability of, of specific things that that system provided so it sounds like this will kind of lead us towards that route again while still as you said keeping the the benefit of how it started out saying specifically you know that uh, you know somebody with just a basic blaster pistol is not going to lag behind and yeah i never want i never want a player to feel like they have to modify their weapons or that they have to yeah, have yeah. a specially templated weapon to, in order to remain viable and by the same token i i don't want any of this to really intrude on gameplay so hopefully if we've done our job correctly you're not going to see you know these modifications really doing more than making your weapons speak to what you do and not really saying oh well because I have this then I can do this and because I also have this then I can do this and then cause the game master to uh, get frustrated and set your character sheet on fire <laughs> well hey um, sometimes that, that happens as an iconic part of the uh, of the story Rodney sure. uh, fantastic man well I'm I'm really excited about this book we've talked about a lot of what's in it but I mean as we kind of conclude our discussion here um, I mean, how? I mean, obviously, you've probably had this book for a little while, or at least the contents of it. What have you done in your games, if you've had any, or your own home games, to kind of use this material? I mean, how, how are you, how are you using it yourself when you're when you're playing? Well, um, so I'm actually running a Legacy Era campaign right now on Fridays at lunchtime. That is uh, doing exactly what I, I I said I wanted to do with this book, which is take the you know the time period of Legacy Era and then apply that sort of scum and villainy feel to it. And uh, right now I've got a group of uh, smugglers, although they're really more like mercenaries, who are working for a Twidarian crime lord and doing all kinds of you know missions for him. It's a it's a it's a lunchtime game at Wizards offices that is. Uh, very episodic because you know we come in and we play and we want to basically wrap everything up by the time the session right. is done although there is a plot thread weaving through everything right so um, basically one of the things I think people that are or excuse me one of the things I think game masters are really going to like about this is uh, chapter 3 it's called the fringe campaigns chapter and chapter 3 is basically I went through um 
all the old West End Games books and try to figure out what are what information do these books provide you that help you run a better campaign, and then I try to figure out what gaps there were left. So basically, Chapter Three has information on piracy, on smuggling, on starports, on shadow ports, on you know missions. Basically, everything you need to design these common villainy adventures. And so what I've done is I've taken that and used that to design these very you know episodic adventures. So. For example, the the game started out with my players going on a salvage mission, right? And so they they got sent by their their crime lord to this uh, start th- this uh, site of a battle from the Sith Imperial War that had all these derelict capital ships from the Galactic Alliance basically floating in space, and the players had to go in and retrieve this cargo that was still sitting in the hold of a a, a undestroyed. Uh, Galactic Alliance capital ship. Mm-hmm. And then when they get inside, they find that uh, the Galactic Alliance is there basically doing the same thing. And so they kill all the guy- the Galactic Alliance members, which at, at that point I was like, yep, you guys are bad guys. Uh, <laughs> and so they kill all the Galactic Alliance guys, take the, uh, take the cargo and leave, right? So the next episode, uh, the, the following week, my players are trying to find a buyer for these goods. And since they... Uh, killed all the Galactic Alliance soldiers that were there, nobody knew that they had done that, right? So they make contact with the Galactic Alliance and then proceed to try and sell them the goods <laughs> that they had, in fact, stolen from them, right? And from there, you know, they basically it took place on the wheel, and from there they had to, you know, escape the Empire, and now they've gone uh, to actually make the delivery, and things have fallen apart, and uh, so yeah, it, I've basically been able to take this book and use it to create my adventures on on uh, on Fridays pretty easily, and so I'm hoping that people will will find all the little random tables. Like there's a random docking bay generator uh, in here, right? And there's you know random space travel hazard hazards. That sounded really country right there. The way I said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you in know. Tennessee. We expect it to come out of you every once in a while. Yeah, well, you know, that, that happens from time to time. But, uh, so basically, yeah, hopefully what people will find in here is a lot of at-the-table utility, like I have. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular that's really made my life easier. Obviously, there is a, a table of sample skill DCs in here that is really nice because I can kind of gauge, you know, my what the challenges are going to be on the fly, uh... With you know when players start, you know making skill checks and what have you. So, you know I I think that there's a lot of utility in this chapter that hopefully game masters will find uh, useful. Very cool. See that, and that was a good story too. See, we Dave, we should have had the when good games go great. You know, uh, overture bumper kind of you know uh, yeah. stuck yeah. somewhere. You know, That's, sure. It's okay. <laughs> but I got to tell you, one thing I've really learned from running this campaign is. Um, I, I've kind of taken a new approach to it. Typically when I run a campaign, I, I think about what I'm going to do in the long term, and I start planning out a bunch of adventures and kind of spread out my good ideas, and I haven't done that for this campaign. Instead, what I've said is, you know, what are the elements that I want to include in this campaign? And I've just started throwing those out rapid fire, right? So, you know, I knew that I wanted the players to fight against the Galactic Alliance a little bit, so the first thing they did was they fought against the Galactic Alliance, right? I knew I wanted them to go to the wheel, and so they went to the wheel and dealt with uh, the Galactic Alliance there, and you know when they got there, it was actually I don't know if you've read the Legacy comics, but they were actually there during the meeting between the Galactic Alliance and the Empire or Rowan Fell's Empire, I should say and so they 
you know, basically helped the Galactic Alliance escape from that, which happens off-screen uh, in the comics. But you know, I, they helped the Galactic Alliance escape, and now they've gone to Socorro uh, to deliver the goods to the Galactic Alliance. And when they get there, they find out that Rav has Rav, the crime lord on um, on Socorro, has sent out his minions, killed all the Galactic Alliance guys, and. Is they're now trying to rob the players of their of their weapons. So I'm really making use of a lot of stuff that's appeared in the comics, and I'm not holding anything back. I'm not, you know, saving anything for later. I'm really putting it all out there. And so far, my players that do read the comics have really, really liked it because they've, you know, interacted with these characters that they're reading about every week. So it's kind of an opposite approach from the the tack I usually take, and I usually don't use a lot of, you know a lot of characters from the comics and movies because I'm afraid it'll get in the way, but this time I've been like, you know, whatever. Yeah, they meet Rav. Yeah, okay, and <laughs> maybe next week they'll meet Cade Skywalker. Who knows? <laughs> Very cool. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, I, I can't wait to pick up the title. I mean, I've got it, I've got it uh, pre-ordered at my, my FLGS, my friendly local gaming store, and I would like to encourage everyone out there who's listening to this cast to go out and, of course, get this new supplement. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic and wonderful for both GMs and players alike. And, Rodney, I want to thank you for taking the time to shoot the proverbial stuff with us and uh, and talk about this book. Um, we really appreciate you, appreciate you coming on. And I know you're you're you know a busy man, but uh, if you got a jet, I understand. But if you would like to stick around, I think TK might like to say hi, maybe. I don't know. I think I can probably do that. Okay, he 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 mentioned he was excited that you were coming on. I, I managed to, <laughs> okay. to text him last night, and he was um he was pretty pleased with it. But uh, cool, cool. Well, thank you very much, sir, for taking the time to share with us. And again, of course, Tuesday, uh, the 18th, the book is out. Go get it. You must have it. It is important. There is an empty space on all of your bookshelves right now, waiting for that book. So go get it. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it speaks. <laughs> That's what oh, excuse I said. me, it has, a, it has a chance to speak. That's what I said. <laughs> that's what I meant to say, anyway. Uh, okay, well, well, that that's pretty good. Well, what do you say, Dave? You think we should try giving TK a call? I suppose we can. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Okay. Uh, TK421, sir. Are you there? Rodney Thompson for TK421. Well, there he is. Our favorite oh, redneck trooper. Yeah. I'm here, man. <laughs> is, uh, is, is, is Mr. Thompson on? Yes, I am. Good to hear from you, TK. <laughs> it's good to hear from you, too, man. How, how, how the heck you doing? I'm doing great, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, that's really good, man. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I'm actually glad you're on because I wanted to ask you and Dave about... Well, kind of a personal question. I'm I'm in need of some moral advice. Oh Lord, this should be good. <laughs> uh, well, no, not like that. Nothing like that. I don't know. You know, I, as a servant of the Empire, I take my duties uh, rather seriously, and uh, there's a certain level of um, uh, in- integrity that we try to maintain. But I had a situation the other day that I, I, I felt impugned on my integrity, as they say, and, and I'm, I'm having a little bit of a attack of conscience about it. Okay. Well, go ahead, Kay. We're listening. Uh, oh, oh, all right. Well, okay. So, so I, I was working down uh, down at the munitions factory over on Coruscant, right? I'm just doing, you know, gardening, making sure people can't come inside, right? 
And uh, there was this group of people that came up to me, and, and they kind of wanted inside the munitions factory. And, you know, uh, I'm a pretty, pretty perceptive fellow, and my hunch told me they might be working for that, that newfangled rebellion. Y'all heard of them? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I told them they couldn't get inside, you know, and I pointed my gun at them. I was going to shoot them, you know, blast a few holes. But one of them, man, this Twi'lek gal, man, she she, she handed me a credit chip and she told me that there was a, a fair amount of money on it. And if I might just, uh, you know, step aside, she might let me in, you know, might, might let me keep it if I let them in, you know. And, and I thought about it long and hard. And, I, I just couldn't say no. You know, I got some medical bills to pay, you know, so I, I took it and, and, and I'm, they, they went inside, man. And I don't know what they did, but, uh, you know, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling mighty bad about it. <laughs> that sounds, uh, that sounds like you could get in a little bit of trouble for that, man. You, uh, I hope you've been, uh, you know, watching your back and making sure that nobody was, uh, nobody was there to witness that little indiscretion. Well, I had my buddy, uh, my buddy Jethro. He, 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 you know, he joined up with me, and uh, you know, I kind of, kind of split my my credits with him, and he was okay with it. But you know, it, it's just, you know, it, it's not so much that I don't think I'm gonna get caught. I'm just worried about, you know, living with this decision. You know, I, I don't know if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be able to to live with myself uh, with it without without telling somebody. I hope I can keep. It. But it was really good to just kind of talk to y'all a little bit. Thank you very much for listening to me. Well, you know, whatever you got to do to vent, but uh, just be careful in the future. You know, the Empire's eyes are everywhere, and I do mean everywhere. Yeah, you better watch it, pal. All right, well, uh, I guess I better get off the phone then. Thank y'all for listening to me. Mr. Thompson, it's good talking to you. And uh, Dave, uh, I I need to talk to you about uh, maybe getting an advance on on my next check. I don't know about that. We'll have to okay. talk later. We'll we'll take it I, offline. I, okay, I'll, I'll call you later. All right, later. that sounds good to me. Later, Ozers. Always on. a pleasure, TK. Yep, always. Bye, TK. <sighs> well, that should bring us to the docking bay. Um, we have our, uh, our our D20 docking bay this week, thanks to Joshua Ortiz. Twenty docking bay hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. Let me guess. Guess. Persuasion. A little bit. Uh, a little bit. A particular bribery. And again, thank you, Joshua Ortiz, who emailed me this week with a fervent plea. Uh, brought on after last week's D20 Docking Bay, and he asks us another question about persuasion. He writes, I really like your discussion on the persuasion mechanics, but I have a question. It makes sense to me that money can go a long way, but I don't care how crappy your persuasion check is. If I'm a noble with wealth, and I throw 5,000 credits at somebody, are they really not going to become friendly? (laughs) Or at least friendly enough to do what we need them to do? Uh, Gather information talks about spending credits to obtain info, but again, if I give you enough money, are you really not going to give me the information I need? I understand that this is an area of GM fiat, but where do you draw the line? My GM doesn't seem too comfortable with the idea of us just using our wealth to accomplish goals. But you guys have said many times that in this game, massive wealth seems to be an ability in its own right. What kind of guidelines can you give me and my GM on how much money can accomplish something? 
Wow. Uh, well, great question, Joshua, and you are dead on, sir. But the real answer here does not even require a guideline or a house rule. Believe it or not, what it requires is the Force Unleashed campaign guide because it details specifically the use, uh, new use of the persuasion skill to bribe, which is exactly what you're wanting to do. Uh, page 31 of the Force Unleashed campaign guide talks about bribery. Um, brand new use for the persuasion skill. Specifically, you can now use persuasion to bribe an individual or uh, of influence or an, an official. And the persuasion DC starts at 10. I mean, for simple requests, as long as you give them the bribe, um, you know, the simple requests that that contact could easily do, but maybe doesn't want to, perhaps because you didn't beat their will defense when trying to change their attitude. Um, but I mean, it gets as high as DC 30 for stuff that is seriously outside that person's duties and that they can't hide. Um, add another 15 to that DC if you, what you're asking will put the person seriously at risk. You know, but OMG GMC, uh, that's a potential DC 45. How can they ever pull that off? Well, yeah, but there's also DC reductions that they detail in the book uh, based on, you guessed it, the amount of money that you're actually willing to give them. Uh, minus 10 to the DC for double the going rate, all the way to a minus 20 for 10 times the going rate. So yeah, if you throw enough money at them, it is going to make a big difference. But you do still have to make a persuasion check. Why? Because all the money in the galaxy usually isn't worth someone's life. And you have to convince them that to be greedier than their instinct for self-preservation. Um, but, you know, hey, with, with a minus 20 to the DC with enough cash thrown at them, you've got usually a much better shot of beating a bribe DC than a will defense to change attitude. I mean, that's for sure. A basic bribe, though, at the quote-unquote going rate to get someone to do something outside the norm, uh, but concealable, such as maybe, I don't know, a guard leaving a door unlocked and taking his break early, DK, um, is only a DC 20. I mean, you throw double the normal cost of the bribe at the guard, it's a DC 10. 10 times the normal bribe, and it's a DC 0. Practically instant success. I mean, the party meat shield with a minus one in persuasion could roll a one and still make that DC. So as for what the going rate is, the rules are kind of silent on the issue. And in my opinion, they should be. I think it's the purview of your GM. Uh, the amount of money should scale with the person you're talking to and the favor. I mean, the guard who leaves the door open might only want a few hundred credits. The moth who has security codes that you want in his, uh, in his is in his right mind to demand several thousand credits. So yeah, Money can solve quite a bit on its own, and there are rules out there for it. You just need to go out and get the Force Unleashed campaign guide and, of course, flip to page 31. So I hope that answers your question. And uh, what do you guys think, Rodney? I mean, have you had any chance and experience dealing with the bribery rules? Well, sure. Like, I'm running my, my well, my Legacy Era Scum and Villainy campaign, and there's definitely been some bribery in that. Um, I think that something that the question kind of ignores is that, you know, there's going to be some people that you just can't throw money at, right? I mean, the, I, maybe this is the eternal optimist in me, but I think there's people out there that are not going to be swayed by money and that have, you know, principles and values that will say, you know, I know I could I could benefit greatly from this, but this is either wrong or, you know, against my ethical code or whatever that you're just not going to be able to bribe, right? And not not just talking about, you know, like fearing for your life, but you know, I'd like to think that, uh, that, that you know, there are people, and myself included out there, that wouldn't take a bribe, you, you know, if it was something moral or unethical, which typically bribes are. So Yeah, I mean, I, doubt, know, I doubt the Jedi Master is going to take a million credits for, you know, even any dereliction of duty. I mean, it, it's not sure. a thing in their makeup. So, yeah, of course, that, that makes good sense. 
So yeah, and uh, well, in the chat room, the full-on gamers saying, of course, true stormtroopers are unbribable. Period. You know, and that's how I run it. Yeah, it's me too. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the way to go. But, I mean, I, I think the bribe rules are neat, and it's one of those things that if you really don't have a persuader in the party and you have someone that could be persuaded, they're willing to make that moral leap yeah. anyway, then you – and you, this – you know, this – having wealth can give you the ability to accomplish that goal, which is – I think I think that's all very true. What I like about it. So, very cool. Thank you for the very – for the, very much for the question, uh, sir, Mr. Joshua Ortiz. Uh, and, uh, again, if you guys have any questions for the Docking Bay, email us, gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdave at d20radio.com. Sign on the forums, d20radio.com slash forum, and let us know. Or, of course, call the Lucid line. Yep. So, excelente. Well, Dave, we've had a few uh, requests, uh, I guess, in the in the chat room for maybe a little bit of uh, of Q&A time. Yeah, that's what I've heard. If uh, I don't know if if maybe m- maybe uh, our our big headed Tennessean friend, uh, uh, Mister Ronnie Thompson, has time uh, and would like to answer a question or three. Yeah, that that sounds totally fine. Um, the uh, I think this is a good chance to uh, take advantage of the uh, the live broadcast and uh, let all the people actually listening to the uh, uh, listening to the podcast live get their questions in. So awesome. throw them out. All right. Do it. All right. Well, uh, shoot, guys. What do we, what do we? Whoa! And, and they come. Here comes Foxworthy. <laughs> Booyah! Whoa! <laughs> Can you move while prone? And if so, at what speed? I would say half movement. Right? You're crawling around. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, uh, me too. Rodney? Okay. Um, so this is going to be a quick fire. Uh, I would say that uh, you can move while prone, but yeah, you're going to be moving at half speed is, is probably perfectly reasonable. And also, uh, you probably can provoke an op- uh, tax of opportunity if you do that as well. So there you go. Cool. All Makes right. Sense. How about that? Um, so, okay. You want to go with zappies? Sure. When do we get rules on designing non-starship vehicles? Like speeders, walkers, stuff? Um, I don't. I can't tell you a specific book or anything that those will be in because I, I can't speak to it. It's certainly something that's on my mind, um, and I wouldn't rule it out in the future. For now, uh, you might want to look at just adapting the starship rules uh, as well, uh, especially for modifications. If you're talking about building things from scratch, though, um, I, I think there is often a desire for a starship or a vehicle construction system when what people really want is a starship or vehicle pricing system because the fact of the matter is the way that canon works in the star wars universe authors and stuff will never be beholden to any kind of uh any kind of construction system right and so you're going to end up having ships that are written into comics or novels or technical guides that don't follow that system right uh, and that that's just the way it is. So I think what serves the role-playing game better is to do a modification system. And then if you need a system for pricing, then that's, you know, that's something totally different. But if you're just looking for rules on how to build a ship and you don't care what the cost is or you can't eyeball the cost, my honest-to-goodness uh, thing that I would tell you to do is just to put everything you want in there and then figure out what the price is going to be based on comparisons to other ships and vehicles. I know that's not much help in the in, you know in the immediate future, but you know a a pricing system you know like that 
will never stand up to to canon and create and you know um, the the descriptions of ships and vehicles that will come in the future. So what I would rather see us do is a modification system like we did with starships, and then give basic chassis. I know that's not going to make everybody happy, but the you know the the way the Star Wars universe works, or excuse me, I should say, the way the Star Wars brand works right now is that the role-playing game is just another uh, branch of the expanded universe. Right. And um, there's always going to be authors, especially when you look at like the technical guides or you know the new essential guide to blah, blah, blah. There's going to be things that are going to – if we try to create a, a rule system, there's going to always be things that violate that. Now, that you know, if, if we find a really good need – for a system like that, right? Like if we say, you know what, we really need this vehicle construction system because it lets us do, you know, X, Y, or Z in the game, then yeah, sure, definitely go after something like that. But um, I think our priority probably lies in the area of modification just because that's what's going to get used more often. Cool. Nice. Okay. Very nice. And I, 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 kind of, I don't know, I kind of agree. Just because in my experience, when you have the very open-ended Starship creation rules, I mean, it makes a lot of people very happy, but it really opens the door for extreme Starship munchkinism. If you have that, you always find a way to break it. And somebody will get something for what it really shouldn't cost. So I'm, I'm also a huge fan of creating the ship and assigning the cost after the fact based on common sense. But that's me. Um, okay, it looks Phil, like Fiddleback wants yeah. to know if there will be more Jedi counseling forthcoming. Uh, currently, uh, Gary Sarley is still our Jedi counseling guy. Um, I know he's had some, uh, issues that have caused it to be delayed. Um, it's n- not canceled by any stretch of the imagination, That's but, um, when the author has difficulty, uh, you know, making, uh, you know, making the articles come out as quickly as the fans want to, obviously, you know, there's not much you can, you can do right. about that. But, um, certainly I'm looking, I, I've been looking lately at a way for us to do something like Jedi counseling and get more answers out there, um, without, you know, basically taking Gary's thunder away. <laughs> exactly. But it's good to know that it's not canceled. So that's a, right. that, that's a good thing. Very cool. Um, I guess Foxworthy had a question, Dave. It looked like um, about telekinetic prodigy. Yep. Um, which I, I guess is is new in. Um, gosh, is that in Kotor or Force Unleashed? Uh, Force Unleashed. Is that in Force Unleashed? That's right. Um, yeah. And uh, does it give you free force powers retroactively for force trainings you took before getting the talent? Because obviously, when you, I, I, if I'm correct, the uh, I don't know the book right in front of me, Force Prodigy. When you you learn an extra telekinetic prodigy, when you take Force training, you you learn an extra uh, telekinetic power, basically. Um, I think so. Give me one second. I actually need to look that one up because I don't have my uh, my book in front of me right now. Uh, so let's go on to the next one, and I'll look that one up real quick. Sounds like a plan. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Foxworthy had another question. Uh, the share talent uh, from the naval officer talent tree, or, or excuse mm-hmm. me, can you can you share talent on the talents from the naval officer talent tree? Uh, rules as written, no. If you wanted to allow it, I don't think that that's going to break your game. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, and David, did did I guess what's next? Barrel had one. Barrel says uh, he wants the rules for gambling altered in the next book. Are they going are, to be? Are the rules? Are they altered? going to be altered in the next book? Huh. Um, I'm not sure exactly to what he's referring, except for the uh, gambling rules in the core rule book. But there's no plans to change that right now. Um, like I said earlier, I think that 
making gambling part of an adventure like we did in the third Dawn of Defiance adventure is probably the more interesting way to go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if he has suggestions, uh, always feel free to hop on the, the wizard's message boards and make them because um, there's, I mean, like I say, nothing is off limits. Cool. Cool beans. Um I guess uh, we had a, another one of our, our, our non-signed-in users said, wondered, is there any advantage for using weapons that deal two damage types? Um, maybe. Um, I, I think that if, if you look at something like uh, there's three new um, excuse me, there's three new talents in the uh, Scum and Villainy book for the soldier class, and I'm trying to flip to it right here real quick. Um, Three new talents for the soldier class, uh, for the weapon specialist talent trees, that actually key off of the um, weapon damage type. Uh-huh. And if you um, take more than one of those and then have a weapon that does multiple damage types, you'll be able to apply more than one at a time. So uh-huh. these talents sort of make those a little bit more useful. Um, and then obviously we can continue to build off that in the future. Well, I mean, and obviously if, if something has like DR against a certain damage type, if you have a weapon that deals both types, it's obviously going to be more likely to overcome multiple DRs. I well, mean, that's actually a disadvantage for the weapons, because if you have DR against a certain type, then that's going to, that's going to negate that attack's DR. Oh, yes, forgive me. I mean, in terms of the, I guess, the, 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 the inverse of that. I mean, like, if you, if you have DR or slashing, in other words, like, slashing gets past the DR, and then you have, like, slashing or energy, you're going to do both. Or is it, are you saying it's the inverse? Or is it, I mean, like, for instance, if, if something has DR uh, 10 or slashing and I'm wielding a lightsaber, I mean, do I get to overcome that DR because it's technically a slashing weapon in addition to an energy weapon? Or? Well, a lightsaber is an exception because it always ignores DR. Oh, well, oh, forgive me. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, but if, if, let's say you're using, a uh, you know, where you have sure, pier- right. like piercing and energy. Right. If you have DR uh, against energy weapons, then it negates the whole thing because it counts as energy damage. Got it. Okay. So going back to the Teleconnect Prodigy question, I, yeah. I think I see where he was going with this. Whenever you take the Force Training feat and select Move Object as one of your Force Powers is, is the way it works, right? So let's say you take Force Training and you select Move Object, so you get the extra, uh, you get the extra um, uh, Force Power. Mm-hmm. If you then uh, you know, increase your Wisdom and would get another power and select Move Object again, you don't get an extra Force Power retroactively for that one. But if you took force training, you didn't select move object, you took this talent, you increased your wisdom, you got a new power and you select move object then, then that would count as selecting move object as a part of that force training feat, and so you would get the extra uh, extra force power. Okay. Okay, well that makes sense. Okay, cool. Uh, what was next, Dave? Well, I see they're, they're, they're coming just rapid fire. Um, uh, I one this is almost kind of an assumption as to whether or not we're going to see if you say if you say no comment fine I'll back it up with it would be a duh question for me stats for clones arc troopers null arc null arcs all that and republic commandos for the clone wars well, books clone wars supplement is coming out yeah um, I would say that people will be very happy with the variety that you'll see. You may not see every single one that you mentioned there. In fact, I'm not 100% positive, 100% positive that we have the nulls in there, but I know that that everything else you mentioned is in there. Well, there you go. Cool. And you yeah. figure most of that would be. I mean, you know. 
Yeah, and it, and it's not that you know we didn't want to include those things. It's just you know you have a finite amount of space, sure. so you, you pick what you think is going to be the most useful. So the difference between a null and an arc trooper and a republic commando at a certain point, you know maybe there's not that much of a difference right away. So we uh, might come back to that later and include nulls in a different book that does take advantage of that and gives them some more unique things to uh, to differentiate them. Cool. Well, cool. Well, we're coming up on two hours, and uh, I know you've well, got yeah, a hard. Yeah, we, we can finish out the well, uh, so. the questions though, if there's if there's more. I don't or think there's. I mean, there's really only a couple of others that were more along the lines of, you know, can you make a can you make a large Wookiee? And I already answered no. <laughs> yeah. I suppose you well, could yeah, theoretically. That was, but, that was the like Shibuta wanted to know. I mean, it does does the the idea of a large. Um, of uh, the rules for a large s- creature, are they balanced on their own, or are they actually built into the species build in terms of, of how they're balanced? In other words, can I can I make something existing large, and you know add it accordingly, or does it is it really per species in terms of how you guys have laid it out? I'm sorry. Can, can you repeat the actual question there? Sorry. Uh, specifically, I'm sorry. I'm going back through the uh, right. Yeah. I'm going back through it. Are the rules for size? balanced on their own or are they part of the species build um i usually take it into account so it's actually kind of an advantage to be a small character Mm. um because frankly carrying capacity is a poor balance uh element so i think that uh so for example you look at like the alina right the alina are very they have a great advantage because they're small they get the dexterity bump right and that's that's a pretty big deal right so um by the same token being large is uh it's got a few advantages to it but it's i think it's more disadvantageous except for when you look at like reach so if you make a large melee character yeah that's probably going to be pretty advantageous so if if we've geared the rest of the species abilities towards you know things that could take advantage of reach you know we'll obviously keep that into account um if it's a medium creature, it is not a factor in uh, species balance. Okay, very cool. Um, and it looks like Beryl had another one. It said, um, for my question, um, let's see. Oh, it looks like it was, it was a clarification. Yeah, it was right? just a clarification of the last question. So clarifications, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, um, the rest are all saying thanks, Rodney. Yeah, the rest are all saying thanks, Rodney. Oh, we have one more. Energy shields. Um, can they okay. stop? Uh, can they stop? And that was kind of back to the the dual weapon, the dual the dual damage weapon. Do uh-huh. energy shields will they stop an energy and piercing weapon like a bowcaster? Or yes, oh. yes, excellent. If it's if it's either, that counts. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. fantastic. Well, excellent. Well, I think that's uh, that's just about just about it from what I can see. Uh, I'm I'm seeing the a note from Foxworthy here asking oh, which see. new errata with the new errata does the bonus from fighting defensively with acrobatics equal plus seven like the errata says under acrobatics or is it plus five oh. <laughs> like the CR says under fighting defensively in combat? It's it's plus five and the reason it, that it says that is that basically. Um, it's not saying you get a plus five bonus to your, you know, fighting defensively bump. It's basically it redirects you to fighting defensively specifically. And when it redirects you there, it's doing so so that you would go look it up and see that you get a plus five if you fight defensively with acrobatics, or a plus ten if you fight defensively with acrobatics and don't make any attacks. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, everyone else is saying, thank you, Rodney, thank you, Rodney, thank you, Rodney. Sure. (laughs) So I'll say it too. Thank you, Rodney. My pleasure.
It was good to have you on. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's always a lot of fun. And I'd just like to point out that I thought it was hilarious that Sam was trying to basically beat my time with the pusher <laughs> or whatever. If Sam's listening, it's not a contest, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I don't think either one of you are terribly competitive people at all. I'm, I'm not sure, you know. Uh, <laughs> at least at least in Sam's case. Uh, well, once again, sir, thank you very much. And uh, look forward to having you on in the future, if you're willing, of course. Sure, absolutely. You know I love it. All right, man. All right. Well, again, Gamer Nation, thank you guys for listening. And for those of you in the chat room, we really, really appreciate you guys. And uh, this is uh, GM Chris for uh, D20 Radio and the Order 66 podcast, signing off and wishing you all peace, love, and good gaming. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at starwars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related websites, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. and gentlemen, the story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is the city, Moss Eisley, Tatooine. I work here. I carry a blaster. You'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy than Moss Eisley. When thousands of species from all over the galaxy gather in one place, you can bet that the one thing they all have in common is trouble. When trouble starts, that's when I go to work. I wear the white armor. The date is Friday the 20th. It's hot in Moss Eisley. My name is TK714. I work the day watch with my partner TK279. The boss is Darth Vader. We received a call about a disturbance at the Moss Eisley Cantina. My partner and I went to investigate. You the bartender here? Uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, all I know is I got a dead rodent in a booth. Go ask around. Excuse me, sir. Can you tell me what happened here? Well, sure, officer. I was I was sitting here having a drink when a little green dude come in, and he, and he slid in the booth all casual like, and, and started talking to the other feller sitting there already. Neither one of them had a drink, and it seemed like they were having a good conversation. So. I heard another drink, and I thought, you know, maybe somebody'd buy me one, but no, nobody did. So, so I sat here and I watched them two fellas. Next thing I know, the the guy in the black leather just opened fire on the other fella and shot him right dead. I don't know. He sounds drunk to me. Seven fourteen. Yeah, you might be right. Two seven nine. Let's ask somebody else. Pardon me, sir. I wonder if you might be able to tell me what happened. 
Oh, it was the greatest thing ever. I'm sitting here having a nice little drink with my wife, and all of a sudden, this green fella comes in and sits down next to the human. I think he was a Rodian, not the human, the Rodian. But anyway, they're sitting there, and they start having an argument. The next thing I know, the Rodian pulls out a blaster and shoots at the other guy. Well, naturally, he returned fire. It was amazing. There was shooting everywhere. The most incredible thing you've ever seen. So the Rodian shot first? Oh, yeah, definitely. We better go ask somebody else, you know, just to make it look official. Right. I hate these bar investigations. You can never get a straight story from anybody. Oh, well, let's try this fellow. Sir, do you know anything about what happened here? Does that make any sense to you? Not a bit. Right. Let's wrap this investigation up, then. You know the routine. And yes, we know 42 is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Mm. So, to end the show, for all of you in the chat room who thought I wasn't going to say it, keep them dice rolling.